everybody, and welcome to episode 49 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we are playing it, we will be talking about it. Tonight, we are recording on September 17th, 2017. My name is Corey Motley, and I am a staff writer at GameCritics.com. I also feel like I have re-earned the title of staff writer because my first review in like a million years went up on Game Critics just the other day, and I've got a few more things in the works, so I feel like a real staff writer again. But beside that, uh, the other person, the other lovely man who co-hosts this podcast with me, his name is Brad Galloway, and he is the editor of Game Critics. How are things, Brad? Things are good and better now that you're back on the site. I got to say, you have not lost your edge. It was a pretty good piece. Talking about uh, last, was it last day of June? Last day of June. I was going to say last night of June, but I'm like, wait a minute. That sounds like a porn <laughs> I saw one time. No, 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 not oh, that. Dear. Last day. <laughs> too much TMI. Too much information. Yeah, didn't lose your edge at all. So if you're listening to the show, go check out Corey's new work. It's a great piece. Thank you. And I'm I, fine. And I'm fine. Uh, yes. Okay, good. Um, I think the weird thing about... Um, like writing because you know we i was writing for game critics like far like years before we started doing this podcast and the weird thing for me is like if i get a review game i don't know if this happens to you so maybe we can discuss it real quick but like i get a review game and i play it and i'm like okay i need to write about this but because you and i podcast every week and i don't have like a hard deadline to write about games i then talk about the game on the podcast and then i like feel like I, I it's less urgent that I write about it because I already kind of like got all my feelings out there in the open and then after the podcast I'm like oh yeah I guess I need to like formally draft this piece about the game even though I spent like you know 30 minutes or so talking about it on the podcast does that happen with you Brad um a little bit differently than that I mean uh it is different now because we have a very, very regular podcast, which is something that Game Critics as a site has like traditionally struggled with for many years. Um, but now that we are on like a pretty much clockwork schedule, yeah, I mean, it does kind of change things up because we probably get a chance to talk about it sooner than we get a chance to write about it, which is weird. But for me, it's like I end up just repeating myself, like whatever I say on the show, like if we do the show first, I will end up just like typing that exact same thing into my review and I feel <laughs> dumb because I'm just repeating myself or vice versa. Like if somehow I end up writing my review, then it's like, oh, well, you might as well not even listen. I mean, read the review because I'm going to say the exact same thing on the show. So it, for me, it's like I have a tr I have trouble coming up with something else to say because I feel like I either write it all and then I just parrot it on the show or I talk about it all and I'm just, you know, blathering the same thing over. So that's kind of a, an issue. But we do tend to cover a couple games. So I try not to spend too much on the ones that I'm going to review and just talk more about the ones that I'm not because then that to me feels a little bit fresher. But it is it is kind of a problem. And interestingly, um, you know, since this show is still getting off the ground, I mean, we're just about to get to episode 50, which is actually pretty exciting uh, when you think about it. But, you know, our poll is mainly as a text-oriented reviews site. So, like, when people send us codes, that's where they want to see the coverage, which is great, and we're happy to do that. But it would be kind of cool to eventually grow the podcast bigger so that if we, like, only wanted to talk and didn't have to write, like, that would be enough coverage for some people. We're not at that point yet, but it would be cool to get there because when I listen to other websites, uh, podcasts, uh, people who don't do reviews but just basically only do a podcast and who have bigger listenership than we do, it's, it's you know, it must be so easy when someone sends them a game, they play it for a couple hours, all they got to do is blather about it. Because I don't know about you, Corey, but for me... 
way easier to talk about a game for 15 minutes than it is to write a thousand words on it. I mean, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I also, I, I'm kind of glad you brought this up because I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about like, I, I don't I don't really know the metrics of game critics. I don't really, I don't know if I can look into it or I don't know if I, uh, I, I never have before. But I was thinking the other day about, um, you know, because game critics, we cover a lot of indie games at game critics that maybe don't have big, big audiences or big playerships or big, you know, they don't sell, you know, a bajillion copies or whatever. And I love indie games. I, I live and breathe to play a great game that I've never heard of before. And then it gets dropped on. I play it as a review game and I end up loving it. Um, but I, I was thinking about this. Uh, I'm not sure how our uh, game uh, game critics coverage, how, how wide it goes versus how wide the podcast goes, because I would be willing to bet that depending on the game, we might actually give the game more coverage based on our listeners on the show than we do with people who go in and like click on the review and read through it and want to learn about the game that way. What do you think about that? Uh, at the current moment, I haven't looked at the hard numbers in a while and always getting exact numbers is always kind of fudgy. Um, but believe it or not, at the current moment, I think that the text reviews outstrips the podcast by a pretty large margin. So I think that we are growing as a show, but we've been so long established as a tech site and, you know, we're Metacritic ranked and also game rankings ranked. And I think we're on one or two other um, aggregators. So when you factor all those things in together, that reach is actually a lot further than the podcast. But the podcast is growing like we're doing really well. Um, we're getting more listeners and, you know, we're not I mean, I mean, to be fair, the website has been there for like, I think it'll be 19 years next year oh, so and we're only on episode 50 of the show so we've got you know the text <laughs> part has a, has a really big fucking head start on us so let's not feel too bad about that but uh i i would be neat to get there i mean I, my my goal is to like one day when people send me codes to offer them like oh okay well would you like a text review or would you just like the podcast and if we could like only do the podcast i mean man we would blast through so many games so quick and it would be so much less work for me but i do love text reviews i love reading I love having the website. So it's not like I want it to go away. And I, I will never in my life stop ever doing like text reviews because I just love writing. But it would be cool to kind of um, help us cover more things in a more timely manner. Yeah, that is true. And even though I do like talking about things in the show an awful lot, um, I do. I think probably my favorite thing about writing for game critics is the fact that it is Metacritic ranked. And I always love, even though it's kind of like selfish and kind of narcissistic, uh, after a review gets published, like going on metacritic.com and looking at all the rankings and seeing like what blurb they pick out from my review and how that like represents may or may not represent my review as a whole. And I just think it's neat that, you know, everything we write has kind of like that aggregate ranking going on in Metacritic because Metacritic, I mean, some people uh, adore Metacritic. Some people hate it. Absolutely hate it. I, I love it. Um, and I love that our stuff goes there. Oh, I love Metacritic. I mean, I think it's great. I visit it at least a couple times a day, um, whether it's for game reviews or whether it's for movies or, you know, whatever. I mean, they've got everything. I mean, it's such a convenient site. It's like, I don't understand how anybody can, <clears throat> excuse me, how anybody can hate it. And I think that's when people start getting too wrapped up in their heads about how some people are misusing Metacritic, which is not their fault. It is not their fault. Like, for example, you have a knife in the kitchen. You can use it to cut fruit, use it to, pre to prepare a lovely roast beef. Or you can stab a fucker in the neck. You know, it's not the knife's fault that someone got stabbed. You're, you're misusing it. Same thing with Metacritic. It is simply there to give you a brief overview of something, to give you a sampling of what the critic said. It's not there to determine someone's salary or bonus 
I don't blame Metacritic for that misuse. I think anybody mad at Metacritic is mad at the wrong person. Uh, I love the site personally. I love it. They're great people over there, and I'm really happy that Game Critics is on it. I think it's just a great service, and I use it all the time. So I don't know if that is deserving of a full disclosure. I mean, I disclosure, I read Metacritic. I mean, I guess that's something that needs to be said. So I'm with you, though, because after a review gets published, I do go over there and check it out, too. And honestly, since Game Critics is all staffed by volunteers, we're not making big bucks on this. That's like one of the cool perks is like you get to see that, like, you know, a billion people are going to be reading your review, especially if it's for like a triple A game or something that's like really uh, anticipated. I mean, it's just it's cool to see that, you know, something that you wrote is is hitting all those eyeballs. It's just a neat little thrill. So I feel you. I feel the exact same way. And I don't feel even a bit guilty about it. Uh, the downside being, of course, is whenever your name is Brad Galloway and you review Near Automata and you give it one of the lowest scores on Metacritic and it goes up and then you get hate mail for like six months after writing your review, right? Uh, yeah, that is the downside <laughs> of being someone who puts a review out and it gets read by a lot of people because, you know, it's like whenever you get mail, it's like nine times out of ten, it's because someone is pissed off at you. It's very rare that you get one where it's like, oh, I really loved what you did. I mean, those do happen. I mean, I'm not going to say they don't, but the other kind are way more prevalent. And that, you know, that also is facilitated by Metacritic because it helps people see your review, people that maybe wouldn't go to your site ordinarily. You know, there's definitely a percentage of people out there who just like pick a game that they like, that they feel invested in emotionally. They go to Metacritic, they scroll to the bottom, and then they just fire off a bunch of hate mails with anybody who doesn't feel the exact same way that they do, which is a really broken way to live. And I feel sorry for those people because they need to like live better. Uh, but those people are out there and those people... Definitely know how to use email, which is kind of a bummer to me. But, you know, that's part of the review game. That's just the thing that happens. And, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. That's true. And um, the other day, I forgot about this until you just said something about it. But um, back whenever I reviewed Doom on the PlayStation 4, about it came out uh, like two Junes ago. So like a year and a few months ago. And I wrote an accompanying piece to it about how I did not like the boss fights in Doom at all. I thought the game was fantastic, but um, I thought the boss fights were really out of place, and I thought they didn't really mesh well with the rest of the game. And I wrote a piece about how I did not like the boss fights, and I talked about some other games like Resident Evil 6 and how that game has terrible boss fights too and stuff like that. And about two weeks ago, somebody commented on that piece on Game Critics, and this is like a year and a month after I wrote it, and they were like, oh, I just finished... Uh, Doom, and I literally typed like something like Doom's boss fights suck into Google, and this was the first piece that came up, and I really agree with everything you said. So it was, it felt really nice after like a year of having that, you know, like you said, like nine, nine times out of ten people write and they're pissed off and complaining about you, whatever you wrote or whatever you reviewed, but it was really nice to have somebody be like, oh, you wrote this a year ago, but I found it and I love it and I agree with it. So that was really nice. Those are really good to get because it's cool to know that something you've done has like such a lasting impact. And because of how, you know, search engines work and how the Internet works, like somebody can come across something that you've written like many, many years ago. And like, you know, like you said, like they'll be like, oh, hey, thank you for saying X, Y, Z or, oh, I totally agree with you. And that's so awesome. I mean, those are really the great ones to get. I love those ones um, because that person really took the time to kind of search things out. And honestly, like that was kind of how. I joined Game Critics. I don't know. If we, have we ever talked about that? How I joined Game Critics like back no. in the day? Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. Story time with Brad. Story time. Everybody gather around. <laughs> grab some popcorn. <laughs> so back in the day, uh, so this was uh, 17, 18 years, almost 18 years ago uh, when I was just a dude and I was not affiliated with any site. I was not the editor of anything. 
uh, except for my own life, possibly. Um, <laughs> I was just uh, killing some time, and I, I played Resident Evil Code Veronica? It must have been Code Veronica. And I was like, God, I fucking hate Code Veronica. Oh, this game sucks. It hurts. I really, I know you like it. I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to bring this up. I don't mean to like poke that wound, but this is just, this is just the, the the what happened in the story. This is just a fact. So, I was like, God, I fucking hate Code Veronica, and I hate that everybody in the world is like praising this game because no one's calling out the problems with it. Um, because even though I was not a critic, I was critical of games at that age. I mean, I can remember being really young and writing down on a sheet of like you know college rule notebook paper what I thought of each game and giving it a number <laughs> just for my own personal use. You know, just I just did that naturally. So I, I went on the internet at that time and I started uh, Googling reviews because I was wondering if anybody in the world felt like I did because I felt like the only person on earth who didn't like Code Veronica. And lo and behold, I read a review. I think it was actually the owner of the site, Chi Kong Lu, who wrote a review. And he was um, critical of it. I mean, he didn't bash it or anything, but he definitely took the time to raise some issues with it. And I was like, oh, my God, these are like the only people on the Internet that like I can even halfway agree with. These are the people who are like actually saying something that I think is really worth saying. And so I wrote in and I'm like, oh, my God, thanks for publishing your review. And I really agree with you. And that's really awesome. And it just so happened that um, right after I discovered them at that time, they were actually looking for some writers. At the time, it was only Chi and uh, his friend Dale. And I think it was just the two of them. And that was it. Uh, or no, there, may, there was one more person, Ben Hopper, who went on to become a video game professional Whoa. and who has become very successful since then. A good friend of mine, Ben Hopper. Um, but I, I wrote in and I'm like, hey, you guys, this is awesome. I love your site. And then they're looking for writers. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, you guys are cool because I like that you guys are not afraid to say things that need to be said. So can I try out? And they're like, yeah, sure. And so I sent in a review for a... God, it was a Dreamcast game, and it was like a fighting game, like a robot fighting game. I can't remember what it's called, but it was like, uh, you know, many years ago. And they took it. They're like, yeah, this is a good review. Why don't you come aboard? It started as a staffer, soon worked my way up to kind of like, I don't know, writer, wrangler, kind of managing things a little bit, and then kind of became an editor, and I've just been there ever since. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of search, that kind of back, you know, that search of the internet looking for a common voice, that kind of a thing is exactly how I joined up with the site. And it's been, you know, a great fit ever since. So I'm glad that that works. I'm glad that that's a thing that can happen. And, you know, like you said, with the doom guy or whatever, that's really cool too. But there is, you know, like we were just saying, take the good with the bad. There's also another side of that. And the other side of that is we still get hate mail for our review of legend of Dragoon, uh, <laughs> from the original PS one back in 1999. We still, still, get hate mail because uh the guy I just mentioned ben hopper he hated that game and for good reason that game sucks that game totally <laughs> fucking sucks uh, i hated it back then it has not aged well i don't know why anybody sticks up for that game but you know so 1999 all these years later we still get a couple of pieces of hate mail for that every year never fails i still get hate mail for um my review of final fantasy crisis core which i don't know when that was but that was several years ago i still get hate mail for that one by people who, for whatever reason, feel like they need to dump on people who hated that game a decade ago. So, you know, you can find people and connect with them over, the, you know, the gulf of time. You can also still get hate mail uh, from out of nowhere as well. So, yeah, Internet is both a blessing and a curse, <laughs> I guess. Indeed. Uh, I didn't really mean to, like, get us off on this giant tangent about, like, games writing and about podcasting and about reviewing games, because this is definitely not what we had <laughs> planned for banter. But... um. 
while we're over here, we might as well jump in. Usually uh, we do some unnecessary banter that's not necessarily game related toward the beginning of the show. Uh, but as always, if you are someone who doesn't like listening to banter uh, and you just want to get to the games talk, I put timestamps in the show notes. I talk about when we start banter, when we end banter, and I usually put timestamps for every single game we talk about. So say if you just want to listen to one of the games and you can jump right to it. But why would you want to do that? As Brad always says, whenever you could listen to the whole show and listen to Brad and I talk about dumb shit for the first quarter of the show every time. So... Brad, after hearing your superhero origin story from Game Critics editor, um, <laughs> what, I know that was probably not your official banter for this week, but did you have anything else that you want to talk about banter-wise? Yeah, just a couple of quick things, um, really briefly. Uh, I talked last week in my banter about the Miss Fisher murder mysteries. Remember that, Corey? Oh, yeah. I saw you. And actually, I'm not going to say what I saw you tweet about because I want you to talk about it. So never mind. Keep going. Okay, cool. So uh, since the time that we talked, I've completed watching the first season God, I love this show. It's so ridiculous. I love the show. Like, it's amazing. Like, I started off feeling like, eh. And then by the end of the first episode, I was kind of in, and it just kind of got better and better. And I just, I love the characters now, and I'm just really, really into it at the moment. And, you know, I, I did learn that there's only three seasons. So I'm on season two right now, and it's that kind of sweet spot where you're like, oh, I'm really into the show. And it feels kind of good to know that there's an end point, but at the same time, you're going to be really sad when it runs out, right? So, like, you're kind of in that, that weird space. But they just announced that they are planning to make a feature film. Now that the TV series is over, they wanted to continue uh, because apparently there's a lot of fans out there and they wanted to do more stories. So they wanted to do a feature film. They secured some funding for it, but they didn't have all of the funding. So they went to Kickstarter to get the rest of the funding to test the waters to see if they could raise the rest of the money. Um, They were asking for a very small sum in terms of feature film budgets, they were only asking for $200,000, which to me seemed like really low. I was like, wow, you should be asking for more if you want a movie. But, you know, I didn't know how much they had already and, you know, what the total plan was. Uh, But I was very, very happy to see just as I was going to pledge a couple bucks, they met their goal on the very first day. So clearly there's a lot of other Miss Fisher fans out there. I was thrilled because now I know that when I get to the end of third season, there will at least be like two more hours of that waiting for me somewhere <laughs> when the film finally comes out, which I'm really stoked about. And it was really cool that I'm still going to chip in a couple bucks just to support them. But it was really awesome to see that it got funded so fast. So kudos to all the other Miss Fisher fans out there with good taste. And I'm really, really happy that I have <laughs> that to look forward to. Did you uh, by chance get a... Get one or two episodes in since last time we talked. Have you watched it yet? I totally have not. Every time we talk about shows on, or I was going to say on Netflix, I guess technically on Netflix. Um, every time we talk about shows on the on the show, every time we talk about shows on the show, um, and I'm like, yeah, I really need to watch that. I never do. I am really bad about that. But I'm still very slowly working my way through. Um, I know I talk about watching Star Trek every once in a while on the show. I'm I'm on the last season of Star Trek Voyager, and I'm working my way through that right now. Um, but I I think I've said it on the show before. I am not one to just sit down and watch TV, so it's really hard for me to get into something. I'm still definitely interested in the show, but it's like on the backest back burner um, imaginable right now, probably for me. 
No, dude, I totally, I totally relate. I mean, I, there's like a million shows that I want to watch and catch up on, but I watch very little TV. I mean, I, I, I'm guessing I probably watch like a lot less than most people. The only time I ever sit down and watch TV is on Saturday and Sunday mornings with my wife. So I get up for work usually about three 30 or four 30. And I just continue that on the weekend because if I sleep in on the weekend, it kind of fucks me up when Monday rolls around. So I just keep <laughs> getting up at the same time. So on the weekend, I'll get up with the wife, have a cup of coffee, a piece of toast or whatever, and we'll watch like uh, two episodes of something on Saturday and two episodes of something on Sunday. And that's basically like all the TV I watch during the week. I mean, maybe once in a while, if my son is like not able to sleep or something, we'll watch a half an hour of a kid's show here or there. But like we don't just at this particular point in time, we just don't have time for uh, for anything else. I mean, I'm like always up editing reviews, publishing reviews doing emails, um, doing work stuff, paperwork stuff. Um, just, you know, I just don't have the time. So uh, slowly, slowly working through it. So I hear you. If you can't get to a show right away, it blows me away. Like when I talk to people and they're like, oh, yeah, I just watched season three of, of, of XYZ show yesterday. Like you had the time to like watch the entire <laughs> the entire season. Like, don't you, what, what else do you do, bro? Like, you, I mean, I guess I mean, I don't mean to sound bad about that because, you know, there was definitely a time in my life when I had like literally nothing going on. So I, I remember those days, but those days are not now. So how much how much TV would you say you watch during a week, Corey? Uh, I mean, if I'm lucky, I watch like if Patrick and I can sync our schedules, usually he gets home from work. One of us cooks dinner and maybe we'll watch like we usually just watch an episode of Voyager as we eat dinner. So maybe like three or four hour because we don't do it it's not like a five it's not like we do it every single night of the week maybe like three or four nights a week so maybe like three or four hours of tv a week maybe um but i do watch i have transitioned into one of those like losers that watches a lot of youtube videos recently like if i'm just like sitting down editing photos or if i want to like eat but i don't want to watch like a 45 minute show if i'm eating by myself i'll just like put a youtube video on and watch it and you know cuz it's only like 15 minutes long cuz i have like i'm one of those people who like i'll sit down and i'll be like oh a, a 30 minute show that's the perfect length but if a show is like 45 minutes i'm like oh no that's way too long that extra 15 minutes is just really going to send it over the edge so the shorter the better for me but maybe 3 or 4 nights a week i'll watch like one episode of voyager and that's pretty much it okay so we probably watch about a comparable amount of tv which I, I would assume is probably a lot less than the average american i mean i think i remember hearing an old survey and it turned out like the average american watched something like i don't know like 20 or 25 hours of tv a week or something like that which to me seems like a ridiculous amount but i know everybody's life is different not judging or anything i just you know i realize that everybody's life is different and i just i can't imagine having that much time to uh to watch a show but just just out of curiosity um what do you what the fuck do you watch on youtube because my son watches my older son watches youtube all the time and i think he watches garbage like every time i see him watching youtube i'm like turn this shit off and do something better with your life like i just i i I mean you know people can do what they want but like i watch what he watches and i think it's just like the most substance free worthless pile of shit What, what is it that you watch on youtube what's good on youtube well, I, I don't, I'm not going to act like I watch anything good on YouTube because I don't, but um, one would think being the video game podcaster and player and writer and reviewer that I am, that I would be one of those guys who watches like game streams all the time, you know, watching like, you know, streamers and stuff like that. But I actually cannot stand watching people play video games. So I'm not a game stream watcher. I hate, there's like nothing I loathe more than like, 
watching someone play a video game and talking over it. I, I know that's like a big thing that people love right now. I cannot stand it. But uh, to be 100% honest with you, Brad, most of what I watch on YouTube is fucking makeup videos, like beauty vloggers. <laughs> I, I started watching, like, there's a... Maybe we can deep dive on this for, like, one minute. I started watching um, a beauty channel from London called Pixie Woo, P-I-X-I-W-O-O. And it's these two women um, from London who are sisters who... And it's not, like... They do, like, real makeup artistry. It's not like, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, just, like, throw on some foundation. Like, they would do, like, uh, looks inspired by, like, Val Garland, who's, like, a really famous makeup artist and stuff like that. And they can do, like, they're pretty much at the level of makeup artistry where, like, you can hand them, like, any product from, like, a $5 eyeshadow palette to, like, a $250 eyeshadow palette, and they can just make it work because they're so good. And I really respected um, the work that they did, and uh, I, it just kind of grew from there. Like, I really liked them because they were, like, two, like, mature women who were into the artistry, and they really, like, they're just, like, kick-ass women, and I really respect them and, and their artistry and what they do for the industry like they have a, a makeup brush line called real techniques that i own quite a few real techniques brushes um and uh and it just kind of like spurred from there like i would find another channel that i like like there's another uk-based makeup artist named lisa eldridge who i really like she's just like this really classy professional lady who talks about like like, I mean, it's it's so much more than just makeup. She talks about, like, color theory and about, like, how to balance elements on the face and stuff like that. Because a lot of younger uh, beauty vloggers, they basically all do their makeup like drag queens. They put on, like, everything they possibly can on their face. Like, primer, foundation, concealer, highlighter, contour, bronzer, eyeshadow, lashes, mascara, lip lip liner, lipstick, lip gloss, and they just look like drag queens. I mean, they look beautiful, but they look like drag queens after they're done because that's, like, the new thing. But, like, Pixie Woo and Lisa Eldridge, they're very much into, like, balancing elements on the face and not, like, doing, like, full-on everything all the time. And I just really respect that kind of thing so yeah when i sit down and i eat for 15 minutes i just throw on a video of some classy ladies doing makeup and that's something that i'm really into well that makes sense because i mean you know you're learning about something that you care about you're getting some more information learning about theories and techniques and stuff that you can add i mean you know learning something i mean that that to me is, is worthwhile i mean uh, my wife kind of does the same thing she'll watch like a lot of cooking shows I mean, you know my wife cooks i mean if anybody follows me on twitter i i post food pictures fairly often of <laughs> stuff that we make and um, so, you know, I can understand like just grabbing a quick viewing of something that you can incorporate, whether it be a new recipe or a new makeup technique or something. Um, but yeah, man, there's a lot of shit on YouTube and I just, <laughs> I just don't get who watches that shit besides my son. I think my son is like literally the guy who like makes all this YouTube shit possible. So I gotta, I gotta talk to him about that. <laughs> um, I did have one other thing I wanted to throw out really quickly. Um, not to get too political, but you know, have you heard of the, the Trump effect where like him, our raging asshole shit pile f garbage fire of a president uh, with his bad behavior, he's like encouraging other people to act badly. Have you heard of this? The Trump effect? I mean, if this is like the same thing as like normalizing bad behavior, then I guess I think so. Yes. Yeah, basically. It's just, you know, oh, the president does it. Why can't I do it? And then a lot of people start acting poorly and, 
he's kind of setting like the worst possible example for the country by, you know, like you said, normalizing or making it seem like this shit is normal, which is not. It's terrible and it's awful. I fucking hate Donald Trump and I hate the Trump effect. Uh, but this weekend we took my son to a, I, you know, I, I hesitate to call it an amusement park because it's basically like a farm, but they do other stuff on the off season. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have like rides and they have a petting zoo and they have like, and I just, you know, they just have like added stuff to their property over the years. And it's become kind of like not a big attraction, but like if you're in the area, you've probably heard of it. And if you go there expecting just a farm, you'll be surprised because there's all this other stuff. So it's, you know, it's not huge, but it's the thing that we go to like once or twice a year, ride the rides, pet the goats and uh, <laughs> grab a sandwich in the restaurant or whatever. You know, it's, it's just a nice way to spend the day. So we went out there this uh, past weekend, and it's in a section of Washington where I generally associate it with just like a bunch of like uh, toothless white trash. So I'm always a little bit hesitant to go out there because I don't like to be surrounded by rednecks. And even though Washington is a fairly blue state, most of that is really centralized within the Seattle area. And if you go further out, it gets pretty red sometimes. So I was like, well, okay, yeah, let's go out. It's no big deal. So we go out there, and number one, I was really surprised by how diverse the crowd was. Like, we went with a, a, um, <clears throat> another family that we like to hang out with, and they commented on it as well. So it wasn't just me imagining it, but it was like, you know, there were a couple of toothless uh, rednecks out there. But there was also, like, some black families, and there were some Indian families, and there were some Hispanic families. And, you know, I mean, it was just like, like a whole bunch of different um, nationalities were there, and everybody had kids, um, and everybody was riding rides. And I'm looking around and, you know, like this Trump shit is always foremost in my mind because it really stresses me out. I'm really unhappy. I'm really I, I just feel like this is like the worst shape America has been in so long. And so I went out there and I was just really paying attention to the people out there. And I was just so impressed because not only was like the group really diverse, everybody was like really cool. Like nobody was being rude to each other. Nobody, you know, like multiple times during the day, I noticed people saying like, oh, excuse me, or oh, you know, like, you know, you bump into somebody and they like take a minute to just say, oh, sorry, or, you know, nothing big. I mean, nothing huge, but like the level of being polite and the level of courtesy and respect was pretty high. Like it was kind of unusually high. Like it was nicer than if I was on the streets of downtown Seattle when someone would bump into me and it was walk off like an asshole. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody really took the time to like, just, just take a moment and recognize that we were all people. And, you know, it just, it was so cool to see all these different folks getting together Everybody having a good time, everybody just just not having a problem with anybody else. And that to me is really like one of the things I love most about when I'm, um, you know, when I'm around here in the area. I, have, I work with a very diverse group of people and I just really enjoy that environment. And I love seeing that. And it's really nice to just see, you know, maybe it was just a great day. Maybe it was uh, something that didn't happen that often. But for whatever reason, being there at that amusement park on that day really encapsulated to me like like the best part of being in America like you know seeing this this wide span of people everybody getting along everybody being just fine everything is good and it was just it was just a really wonderful feeling so to me that was like like the opposite of the Trump effect it was like what what I feel like America is supposed to be you know not that it necessarily is all the time I'm not saying America is perfect it certainly isn't we've got a lot of problems uh, for sure but it's not it's not as bad as Trump wants to make it. And uh, to that, that little piece, that little afternoon was kind of proof of that. So uh, it was just a really wonderful thing that I, I really appreciated. And I was really happy to be part of it. I was like fearing that that 
the way you started that story, I thought it was going to like nosedive halfway through when you were going to be like, oh, and these people were out there like burning, you know, effigies of Hillary Clinton and blah, blah, blah. Like I totally <laughs> thought that's where that story was going to go. And I'm glad it did not go there. No, it was awesome, man. It was really awesome. And it was just great to see so many people of different colors and creeds just getting together. And like, we're all just there for the hot dogs. We're all just there to ride the rides. That's all it is. That's all it's about. You know, that's all it's got to be about. So yeah. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel like people are just terrible. Like you ever watch a sci-fi movie and like the aliens show up to earth and they're like, you humans are so fucked up. We got to eradicate you from the universe because you guys fight with each other all the time. You don't know how to take care of yourselves. You're polluting your planet and fuck, you know, fuck humans. And sometimes I totally feel like that. And then other times, like today, like that day I'm talking about, I'm like, God, people can be really cool. Like, it's really nice. And, you know, it's really great when things happen. And, you know, people put out an effort to be just a regular human being who cares about other human beings. You know, I kind of swing back and forth. I mean, do you, do you, do you, you know, feel both ends of that spectrum? Yeah, I definitely go back and forth. And I also, uh, I also think about how certain forms of like movies or games or something, how they would affect me now. Because I, every once in a while, Maybe actually it's this is more like once a week probably. I have this thought that this is gonna be like really nerdy, but um I sometimes I think about like, okay, if I played Mass Effect One for the first time, like this year, or say if it came out this year and it was like the hot, you know, the new hotness. Um you know, I mean one of the slight spoiler alerts, if you haven't played Mass Effect yet, skip ahead like one minute. One of the hooks of that game or like one of the twists or whatever you want to call it is that the Reapers invade um and basically they kind of like wait for humanity to get to a certain position and then they kind of like eradicate all life in the galaxy and they kind of like hit the reset button and then start over. And, you know, I feel like if I played Mass Effect for the first time now, I would be like yeah, go ahead, like, go ahead and kill all of us, because we pretty much deserve it, like, we need society to hit the reset button, and, like, but while you're playing the game in, like, 2007, when it comes out, you're like, oh, no, this is so terrible, like, humanity deserves to live, and all these races deserve to live together, but if I played it for the first time now, I'd probably just be like, yeah, we can probably just kill everybody, that'd be fine, like, that's, this is fine. Oh, God, you know... Yeah, man. I mean, especially right now in America, I, uh, I I hate to feel like that because I've never been that guy who wanted to eradicate humanity. And I'm still not like I'm just not. But there are there are times when I'm like, God, why do we do this to ourselves? Why are we being so awful to ourselves? Like, why do we keep doing these choices? Like, it's so awful. And like anybody with half a brain would you would think would see that this is the wrong way to be. And yet we keep doing these awful things. And it's it's really tough to square that circle sometimes. It is really, really tough. But um, thankfully, Reapers are not a thing, and we don't need to make that choice. Uh, so I guess we'll just continue on, continuing on for the time being. Um, I have taken up a billion years of <laughs> showtime. What did, what did you have on tap for banter, man? Let's get to some of your banter. Well, the good news is that I don't really have a whole lot to say. I, I go, I often swing wildly back and forth between, like, my weeks being, like, really... Like, I have a lot of stuff going on. Like, oh, I'm out photographing this pro athlete for, like, half the week. And then some weeks I'm like, yeah, I just sat around all week. And this is kind of like a, yeah, I just sat around all week. But I do want to say um, I went to a concert last night. And I'm not, like, I'm not one to go to concerts a lot. Um, like, it's been, and lately I've been going to, like, electronic music shows more. But I went to a rock show last night. And it's for 
what I would maybe consider my all-time favorite band. I'm not sure if that's accurate anymore, but if not, it's like top three. Uh, and the band is named Emery. Have you heard of Emery, Brad? I've never heard of them. That does not surprise me because they're not super famous. But um, they are, I actually, I might be wrong when I say this, but I feel like they might have started in Seattle. So I, I don't want to like guilt trip you into thinking you're supposed to have heard of them because they're from Seattle. But I feel like that's where they started. <laughs> um, but uh, they're basically like, they're like a low key, like Christian rock group. And if you know me at all, you'd probably be like, wow, Christian rock, really? Because that doesn't, I don't, I don't really feel like I give off vibes that I would be into like gospel music. And I'm not, and they're not like super, like their songs aren't like overbearingly religious. And like, if you're into that, that's fine, but I'm not. And their, their songs are very much about more like, you know, the normal stuff the songs are about, like, uh, like love and, uh, you know, life and death. They have a lot of songs about like life and death, but not in like a Jesus-y way um, and just sort of like a, this is like the circle of life kind of way. And I started listening to them whenever I was in high school. And one thing that really attracted me to them at first was uh, the fact that they have, they kind of have two lead singers. Like it's an all dude group, but they have like two guys who are both like lead vocalists. And so they do a lot of like, harmonizing and a lot of like singing together and you know one person will be singing this line while the other person is singing this line under him rather than it just being like one person singing the whole time and um and they've been a band for a really long time I mean I think they put out their first album in like probably like around I don't know like late 90s or something so they've been touring for like two decades or more and and uh it was cool to see them last night because the last time I saw them, I was in college, and I actually saw them. Uh, one of my best guy friends, Nick, uh, he's a really big Emory fan, too. And whenever we were in college, we saw them. It was really neat. They came to Columbia, which is where I lived at the time, Columbia, Missouri. And on their way to Columbia, Missouri, one of their buses broke down. So they did an acoustic show in Columbia instead of, like, their full-on, like, live electric show because they didn't have their equipment. And they were in St. Louis the next night, which is only two hours away from Columbia. So Nick and I already knew that we were going to go see them two nights back to back in Columbia and St. Louis. And then in St. Louis, they had like all their shit back. So they did their like full on show. So we got to see like two completely different shows from them um, in two different nights, which was just amazing. And uh, that was probably in like 2010 or 2011, maybe. So I got to see them. They came to New Orleans last night. They're doing like a really small kind of like Southern area tour. Like they went to Texas and they were here. And I think they did there in like Alabama tonight and, uh, Mississippi and stuff like that. So they're just doing a handful of shows. Um, but it was really nice to see them. I feel kind of bad for them because like they had like, like their second album, which probably came out in like the 2000, like early 2000s was probably their most famous album. And like, they, they're just kind of one of those bands that like, and this is probably true of like a million bands out there that they keep putting out music, but they don't really like get any more famous. Like they haven't had that like, like hit radio success, you know, that every band may or may not dream of. So they've just kind of been like in the same space. And it was really, I mean, it was great to see them last night because I'm one of those people who like, when I go to a concert, I don't really like, like, you know, like jump around or get crazy or like scream and shout or pump my fist. I'm more of the guy who just like stands there and like, just like my jaw just like drops and I'm just in this like state of like really like euphoric, um, I guess like happiness, just like seeing like these musicians that I look up to so much, um, you know, just right in front of me playing their music and they're just incredible musicians. Um, 
but I just felt kind of bad for them last night because like the crowd was pretty small and I mean there were maybe like 50 people there uh and I I just feel a little bit sad because it's like you know these guys have been touring for like probably like 20 plus years and they have like five or six albums and like they're recording their next album right now and it was really great to see them but I just I don't know I think about that whenever I see bands like that there because they're all kind of older they're probably like late maybe like 40s somewhere in there I mean they're not like young like 20 somethings touring anymore and it's just I don't know kind of sad to me that they like are really really good and I have loved them for so long, but, you know, they're playing shows that only draw, like, 50 people or so. But I guess that's kind of uh, how the music industry works, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah, wow. I mean, that is a pretty small show, but, I mean, I definitely get that feeling. I mean, I've thought the same about bands that I have liked in the past. I mean, I'm not really much into music now because I don't have, like, the time. But, you know, when I was younger, I would go to shows. And a lot of the shows that I went to were pretty small. And there were bands that, like, you know, not a lot of people have heard of or that, you know, maybe they had, like, one video on MTV and then they just, like, <laughs> disappeared after that. Or, or, or kind of like you said, like, they would put out a series of albums, but, like, no one would know except for the people who, like, liked them already. So I hear you. I'm, I'm going to look up those guys and see what they're all about. I, uh, I I have never heard of them. If they're from Seattle, that would be cool. But I will uh, I'll check them out on YouTube or something uh, after we get off the show. If you want to tell me how to spell their name, I'll look it up. Uh, for sure. Um do you want me to tell you on air or later? Yeah, go ahead, in case anybody listening wants to look them up, too. Oh, true that, true that. Uh, they're just Emery, E-M-E-R-Y, and uh, it's like a five-person rock outfit. I'm, like, pretty sure they're from Seattle, but I'm not positive on that. But, um, yeah, they're they're really good. The album I would recommend starting with is their second album called This Is For You and For Anybody Who's Listening. It's called The Question, their second album. And after that, I would recommend, I think it's In Shallow Seas We Sail, which is their fourth full-length album. Those are the two I would recommend starting with. All right, cool. I will look it up uh, after the show. And listeners, feel free to look it up as well. Send us <laughs> send us some um, comments, and we'll have like a little music corner. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, any other banter from you this week, Corey? Uh, I don't think so. We're like almost 45 minutes in, so we should probably talk about some video games. What do you think? That sounds good to me. All right. Well, I uh, you've got substantially more than I have to talk about this week. So do you want to jump in and talk about your first game? Yeah, that's fine. Although it's funny you say that because I feel like I didn't play anything this week. And I was actually kind of stressing out about the show because I was like, oh, shit, what am I going to talk about? And then when I wrote <laughs> it down, I'm like, well, I got a couple things to talk about, I guess. Although I don't I don't feel like I got anything big to talk about, but we're going to roll with what we got. First thing I want to talk about this week. Um, just a quick update to Tooth and Tail, which I talked about last week. And after that time, I went ahead and wrote my full review. So my text review is up on Game Critics now. You can see everything that I had to say about it. Uh, but like we said at the beginning of the show, I will just tell you exactly right now what I said about it because I will just copy what I wrote down. <laughs> um, uh, at the last time we talked about it, I think I had kind of stalled out about halfway through the campaign because of some difficulty spikes and I actually, in fact, wrote to the developer. Did I talk about this last week? Did I Had I written to the developer by that point? Do you remember? Um, the last thing you talked about was the developer had sent you some, like, videos that they hadn't published yet that they were, were going to help you. And in one of the videos, the level you were stuck on, the guy who was narrating it was like, oh, this is, this is going to be a hard level. And you said that you had watched the videos and you had not progressed through the level yet, but that you were going to give it another shot. Okay, right, right. So I did go back. Um, I took his advice. I still was not able to complete the level. Um, I don't know whether he was just much better than me or what, but like, 
I mean, the maps are randomized, which is a little bit of a problem. And also, I just, uh, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I think that their basic core concept of taking a real-time strategy game, and I'm sorry, I should probably back up in case people didn't listen to last week's episode. <laughs> Jumping way ahead of here. Sorry, folks. Sorry. Um, so Tooth & Tail is an indie game released on PC and PS4. Uh, it's a real-time strategy game, but the point of the game is that it's supposed to be streamlined and more approachable. So rather than having 85 jillion things to juggle and jumping around the map and having a lot of hotkeys, you basically control one character. This character has a flag, and they run around the battlefield and give people orders. So like, whenever you want somebody to go to a place, you run there yourself with your flag, and you say, hey, attack over here. And when you want to attack somewhere else, you run, you run to that place and wave your flag over there and say attack over there. So it's you're only really controlling one person at a time, theoretically. And so it's supposed to be a lot simpler and more approachable for people who don't really um, excel at RTS games like me. I suck at them. They're like one of my worst genres. So I thought for that reason it would be a good thing to approach because it was a streamlined, and I like the idea where you're basically an army of animals, and there's like this animal revolution going on. The pixel art was really cool. Um, just a lot of really good vibes to it. I really liked it on the floor of packs. I thought it, uh, it was really cool. It demoed well, I thought. Um, so I was checking it out. So now with that out of the way, uh, I got about halfway through the story campaign, could not finish the level. I wrote to the developers and I said, hey, you guys, this uh, level is really hard. I think maybe you guys need to scale it back a little bit because I watched your video and you guys, you know, finished like a boss, but it looked really tough. And I don't think that everybody is going to be playing on your level. Maybe, maybe take a look at that. And they're like, oh, Jinx, yummy Coke, because we just, uh, <laughs> we scaled back the difficulty of like six or eight levels, and that was one of the ones that we did. And I'm like, oh, excellent. So I went back, still couldn't beat it. It was still too hard for me. <laughs> so that sucked. Um, and I just kind of, I got really frustrated because I tried that level like 15 or 20 times, could not beat it. I came close a couple times, but just could not get the job done. And I just was like, I'm not going to devote any more of my actual lifespan to this level because this level sucks. Uh, I just, I think it's too hard. I don't think it's designed well. And it kind of feeds back into problems I had with the game itself. Basically being, uh, when you are controlling your one flag bearer character who gives orders to everybody, that's fine. But the AI does not have that problem. The AI knows where everybody is at all times. It has no issue, you know, doing things that I think a normal human being probably could not pull off in the middle of a game. So, I mean, for example, what kept happening to me was I needed to protect my rear flank. I would take my main character back there, bring some soldiers back there to protect the rear flank. When I was back there, the people who were in the front of my army would be getting killed because they would stand there like dumbasses as enemies would sit there and, and kill them. They wouldn't defend themselves and they were just getting mowed down. And in an RTS like this, you don't just have those soldiers. Like you have to like, generate resources. That takes time. Then you have to like build those soldiers and that takes time and then you get them out there. So it's like this long fucking process. And if your guys are standing around getting mowed down, because I'm not there to tell them what to do, that is a problem. And so I just got so sick of my guys getting picked off by enemies that were standing like a foot outside of their like circle of awareness. And even though they were getting shot, they weren't dodging, they weren't fighting back, they were just getting just straight up killed. And it was like, I can't, I can't manage the entire battlefield all by myself, especially if my soldiers are not going to take any precautions whatsoever. They're not running for cover. They're not shooting back. They're not doing anything. They're just getting killed, which is really, really frustrating to me. So I, I bailed. Um, when I, I got done with the campaign, well, I, I, I was done with the campaign. I didn't finish the campaign, but I was done with the campaign. <laughs> I went over to the multiplayer section, and I didn't really have a big interest in doing the multiplayer because I'm just not a PvP kind of guy to begin with. 
But I will say, the game is actually much better in multiplayer because when you are playing against someone else who has the exact same limitations that you do, it feels like a much more fair game. Like, you, you, you can see, oh, this guy is struggling the same way that I'm struggling. He is in the north, and so I'm attacking south because I know he can't be there. And that's that's fair because I, you know, I'm not defending my rear area while he's attacking that. So, like, you feel like you're on level ground. Like, if someone gets uh, a leg up on you, it's because, you know, he played a little bit better or he had his army a little bit tighter than yours or whatever. So, I mean, it, I won a couple, lost a couple, and that, to me, felt like a much better experience rather than going up against the AI in these situations, which I feel are kind of stacked against the player to begin with. So, I don't know that I would recommend this game just for the PvP because... There's not really a lot to it other than like, you know, trying to earn rank and ranking up. I mean, there's not really anything to earn or unlock or anything to really work towards. You just kind of play it for the fun of playing it. And it is kind of fun if you like PvP. Uh, but at the same time, I really wish that campaign would have been better. I, I would have really enjoyed uh, finishing that and going through the whole story. But it was just too frustrating and I just didn't want to spend any more time on it. So overall... I liked what it was doing. I think that if they had scaled back the difficulty, I would be able to give it a much stronger recommendation. But at the moment, I think I probably would tell most people to pass unless they had a really strong interest in PvP, which is where I think the game actually shines. So I wrapped it. I'm done. I'm not going to come back to it. I mean, maybe I would if they told me they like really, really re reworked a lot of those levels. Maybe I would. But for the moment, I'm finished with Tooth and Tail. So uh, last we spoke, you were not too interested in this one, were you, Corey? Uh, no, I was not, but I'm interested to know, cause last week you and I talked uh, pretty heavily about like, um, because you're not an RTS player, you weren't sure if you were at a greater disadvantage playing it or not. Um, have you developed any more in this hypothesis of your RTS experience through playing this? Yeah. You know, I actually, after I had, um, sent my after i wrote the review i sent a link to the developer and i said hey you know thanks for sending me the code really appreciate it happy to meet you guys at the show and here's my review i hope you feel like it's fair um i gave him a pretty low score so i mean i know that's tough to take for any developer and i, I you know i just wanted him to know that i wasn't like torpedoing their game i mean i gave it a, a fair shake and i feel like i did a good job of outlining the issues that i had with it um and they wrote back and they're like oh yeah that's a, you know thanks for sending that in it's a very fair review half the reviewers felt like it was way too hard and the other half, who I assume are the RTS players, felt like it was totally no problem at all. So I think that I think that kind of panned out. I think that if you have expertise in the genre, you probably would be able to get through a lot of that campaign, uh, you know, probably a lot easier than I did. But, you know, it, it goes to show that half the people who reviewed that game also felt like it was way too hard. And I'm assuming those are probably the console half. Uh, because, you know, with this game launching on PS4, I think that they really should have taken into account that more people like me probably would have very little RTS experience. You know, if you're only, if you're uh, mostly a console player, you don't get a lot of RTSs on console because it doesn't really work on console uh, mechanically, which is why keep, people keep trying to figure out ways to bring that to console, which I appreciate. I, I think it's an interesting genre. I mean, I, I look at the games. I don't play them often, but I always keep little tabs on what's going on and see what's, you know, what's new. And, I, you know, their efforts to, to make that accessible to console players is admirable, and I think that's great, but... I think there are definitely reasons why it doesn't work so well in console and people really have to go overtime to make sure that that happens correctly. I don't think tooth and tail quite got there, but yeah, I mean, based on what they said and based on my observations, I definitely think that if you have an RTS background, you probably have a much easier time of things. Just, just based on like knowledge that you already have from other games or like not, you know, tropes of the genre or 
just general RTS knowledge would help you out. Whereas for me, where I'm, you know, basically a newcomer to the genre, I just dabble a little bit here and there. Uh, I, I, I definitely felt like I needed more teaching and more instruction about what is, you know, the best way to play this game or what's a, what's a winning strategy. So, yeah, I think my hypothesis was right um, about my knowledge being a little bit of a hindrance. But at the same time, I don't think that was unfair because, you know, like I said, I think a lot of people coming to this game are going to be in my same boat. So any developer launching with half of their audience being on console you know, had to have taken that into account. So it is what it is, I guess. I mean, I appreciate the effort and I, you know, it's not like I hate the game, but I, you know, a little easier and a little more um, teaching would have been great. And at least you weren't like that, like everybody else was like, oh, eight out of 10, this is such a good RTS. It's so accessible. And you were like, oh, two out of 10, this game sucks. It's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't go as low as two. I gave it, I ended up giving it a six and a half because I felt like, it was a little bit better than average, mostly because the multiplayer really saved it for me. If the multiplayer hadn't been there, and this feels really weird to me because I, I usually don't give a fuck about multiplayer, but <laughs> this was one case where it really saved the experience. I mean, if it hadn't been for the multiplayer, I would have scored it much lower because I felt like the mechanical design problems were pretty significant. But that ended up being a pretty good mode, so it kind of ballparked it in the middle. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully they'll they'll take a look at it and tweak it some more but uh, I mean that's really the way to play games these days come back to any game a year after it's release and it'll be better than when it released that is definitely true um, anyway that's uh, oh sorry sorry didn't mean I to was cut just you off there. ask you if you had anything else to say no no that's all I got on tooth and tail man I am very interested in getting a destiny 2 update from you though sir you are lying you are not interested in hearing me talk about destiny 2. That's true. I don't give a shit about that game, but I'm trying to follow the script. So go ahead and start talking about it. Okay. I don't have a whole lot to say about Destiny 2. Um, last time when I talked about it, I had only played it for like three or four hours or something like that. And um, so, I mean, if you don't know what Destiny 2 is, you've probably been living under a rock as uh, stupid as it is to say that. This is Bungie's, you know, big sequel to the biggest game ever made, Destiny. And it is... Uh, uh, I played a li- just to recap. I played a little bit of the first Destiny. I played like a couple hours, and I didn't really like it. I thought um, the shooting was very mediocre because it's very much like a strafe and shoot kind of game that I wasn't really into at the time because I liked more like tactical shooters at the time. And uh, basically, Destiny Two is like the same thing. It's like f- it feels mechanically very similar to uh, the first Destiny. Um, but I'm actually enjoying Destiny 2 more than I thought I was going to, but I feel like, and I talked about this on the last show, that I mostly owe that to the fact that I played The Division, which was sort of like my like a gateway drug into this sort of like pseudo-MMO, like first-person shooter kind of game. Um, I don't even know, like, do you, Brad, do you know what like the technical genre name is for a game like Destiny or The Division? Um, I think people are still kind of struggling with that a little bit, but I think it's pretty fair to say that it's really just an MMO. I mean, the mechanics may be different, but I think it's just an MMO. Okay, then we'll go with that. Because every time I say MMO, I'm always like, oh, am I like betraying the legacy of MMOs by calling Destiny an MMO? But here we are. We'll just, we'll we'll go with that. So, um, but I, I just want to talk about a couple things about Destiny 2. I still have not finished it. I'm the only person on the planet who has started it and has not finished the campaign yet because allegedly the campaign is supposed to be like really short, but... 
I was, I'm really focused on like leveling up my character and getting better gear and, uh, you know, getting better armor and better guns and all that stuff and unlocking all of my, they have subclasses in the game and, uh, which are like basically are different, like special abilities and like some very minor upgrade trees that you have to unlock as you play through the campaign. Um, and that kind of leads me into uh, one of my biggest criticisms about the game. And some people might be able to see this coming a mile away. Uh, some others, maybe not. But I, I feel the need to play this game a lot um, and do a lot of side missions and a lot of side quests and a lot of like little public events because the campaign is really hard. And I'm playing by myself. And it, it gets to a point, and I reckon that the first game probably was like this. I also know for a fact that The Division was like this because when me and you and your wife played the division it was still hard with all three of us playing together and destiny is no different it seems like it was very and i I know you know it was built to be a game that you play with your friends you get a group together you play together but i don't think that um like i I think that they should have and maybe they do scale it a certain way but i feel like they should scale down the difficulty a little bit if you're playing by yourself because i keep getting into these like mission like concluding mission fights these like climactic fights at the end of uh, story missions where it's basically just like me by myself against like waves and waves and waves of enemies and there is like a big boss enemy and and it the and it does that really arbitrary like oh this is a no respawn zone and like i get it and you know the division did the same thing you know like the end of every mission is like you know you just you can't respawn and and if you die, you get checkpointed like 10 minutes back or something. But it just feels so arbitrary and so stupid that like, because it basically serves no story purpose at all from what I can tell. It's basically just like the developers being like, oh, we decided that you can't respond from this point on. And it just gets really hard. Like it gets really frustrating. And there have been a couple times where I've, you know, spent 15 minutes playing a mission, got to the last battle and the the final battle, I end up dying several times and respawning and Every time I respawn, I'm just like, ugh, you know, I'm going to have to, like, play this whole final battle again instead of just, like, you know, reloading on the spot. And I feel like it's not worth it, but at the same time, I'm like, ugh, but I spent, like, 15 or 20 minutes working up to this spot, so I'm going to have to replay all of that again if I don't reload my checkpoint. And it's just, like, it feels like I need to be playing with, like, three other people or two other people or X other people for the game to feel, like, fun and good and fluid and, like... Uh, like not even easy but just like manageable and it it just is hard by myself brad yeah i mean i i think that it's probably possible to play by yourself and you know full disclosure i have not played destiny 2 i played destiny 1 for a while but not 2 uh but you know like other games of this sort i mean i think they make it pretty clear like this is supposed to be a group experience everybody who really loves this game inevitably talks about because it's with their bros or they you know they have a group together that they do i I almost never hear of anybody saying i'm just playing this by myself and i like leveling up and i like the i like the story and i like the mechanics it's always like oh this is our this is our friday night game or this is my you know my chill out game or something where it's like it's more of a social thing i think i mean it seems to me like half the appeal of this game is just the social aspect um so you know i'm sure the answer to that would be do the matchmaking get up with a group go through it and don't be it by yourself i mean that's you know, I can hear a thousand people listening to this podcast screaming that at their speakers right now. <laughs> and that's just how this, I mean, I, you know, I can't say for certain because I haven't played it. But I mean, I would assume that's how they want you to play this game is don't do it by yourself. And they probably, you know, put a lot of time and effort into the systems to make the matchmaking easy and 
to, you know, to be able to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing with the division, though. Like, the thing that made that fun and playable was that we had a group and we did it regularly and we went through it together. So we were able to support each other and that was fun. That game would have been boring as shit by yourself. <laughs> like, I would not have played it by myself. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have finished the campaign if it was only me. I would have gotten a couple hours in and been like, okay, this is good. But the fact that we had a group together made that bearable or made it, it made it good, made it enjoyable. I'm assuming that's got to be the same for Destiny 2. Yeah, it definitely seems the same. Um, but uh, aside from that, there are actually, there's like two more small points I want to talk about with Destiny 2. I mean, the first being, um, yeah, it's hard by yourself. Um, but uh, one thing I do actually really like about Destiny 2, and I can't remember if I talked about this a lot or in depth in the last show. I don't think I did. I might have mentioned it. But um, I, I really enjoy the environmental design of Destiny 2 because there are a lot, there are a lot of shooters out there. There are a lot of shooters. I play a lot of shooters. I play a lot of first-person shooters. I play a lot of third-person shooters. I play a lot of tactical first-person games. I play a lot of walking simulators. And, I mean, I could probably count on one hand in the past decade the amount of, of first-person shooters I've played that have environmental design that's so interesting that I actually like stop to like look at things rather than just feeling like I'm playing a Call of Duty where the game's just like beating me over the head with the frying pan to like keep going as fast as I can and as quick as I can and as brutal as I can to get to the end, to get to the end of the level. And, um, you know, surprisingly enough, I didn't really think that that was going to be the case with Destiny 2, but uh, there's a lot of visual design in Destiny 2 that I'm really satisfied with and I'm actually planning on writing a very long, um, posts on game critics in the future about the visual design of destiny and about how they use color theory in really interesting ways. And this is kind of, uh, you know, funny cause it kind of loops back to like the makeup videos I was talking about earlier. Cause like I've learned a lot of things about color theory through watching makeup videos on YouTube. And now I can write articles about color theory in video games, you know, with a little more research on it. But like, you know, you look at, there's like the joke in the movie industry where you look at movie posters or the way that people color tone movies. And it's always like the, the teal and orange thing. Like there's always, you know, the, the light, the bright blues and the bright orange. And it's because on the color wheel, those colors are complementary colors. And it means that if you look at a color wheel, orange and blue are directly opposite of each other on the color wheel. And that's why um, from like a human eye perspective, they are pleasing colors to look at because they're across from each other on the color wheel. That's part of color theory. And one thing that I think is really interesting about Destiny 2 is that it actually bucks a lot of um, very normal color theory trends. Like, the opening level is, like, blue and orange as a motherfucker. Like, I, I wrote a tweet about this where I was taking screenshots, like, the entire time through the first level. Like, every environment, it's, like, a blue hallway with, like, an orange room at the end, or you're in an orange hallway, and there's blue lights on the side or something. And I like that aesthetic, but it's just so overused. But whenever you get to other planets, there are definite, like, you know, situations where it'll be, like, you'll be looking in the environment, and there's, like, a very bright red, and there's, like, blue and teal and, you know, brown, and they're all in the same screen together. So it kind of, like, it looks like it should be a lot of, like, color theory colors, like butting heads and looking bad but it actually looks good and i think uh i think it's worth expanding on and i'm gonna write about it later and get a bunch of visual examples ready but that's one thing that i find really fascinating about the game is that there's stuff in it that i actually stop and look at and make sure i, I love taking screenshots during video games where i stop and i take pictures and 
I, you know, I walk around and look at something and I'll take a little video of it and make like some gifts out of it or something. Cause destiny two has a surprising amount of really, really thoughtful, really colorful, really bright, uh, visual design that kind of reminds me of like mirror's edge. Cause mirror's edge is one of the, the first games in my life that I've ever played where I felt like it had a very fascinating and unique visual identity that I had never seen done before. And, you know, at this point, I can't act like Destiny 2 is doing the same thing because it reminds me of Mirror's Edge, but it just has a lot of that same stuff going for it where, like, that Bungie was definitely not afraid to use color and they weren't afraid to use very saturated colors and very um, uh, sort of, like... Uh, supplementary colors almost like next to each other on the screen and it actually looks pretty good i'm really satisfied with the way that destiny 2 looks oh right on um i don't remember being too impressed with the environmental design the first time around but i mean who knows what how that's changed um i don't have any plans to check it out anytime soon uh but i mean i trust your judgment when it comes to those type of things. I know you put a lot more um, energy and interest into those than I do. I mean, I'm more of the guy who just kind of like breezes through and, you know, I'll look at something if it's like obviously really impressive, but in general, I'm not like, it takes a pretty special environment to really catch my attention. So I would probably defer to you on that, but I will look forward to your, your full report on the color theory present in uh, Halo or not Halo, Halo, <laughs> Halo, God. Oh, Bungie, I love you. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> Destiny 2. Destiny 2. Well, thank you. Um, I look forward to writing it. And one quick mention before we move on about Destiny 2 is um, I actually, I think the writing in this game is really bad. And I know we talked about <laughs> the story. Like last week, we talked about how Bungie can't write a story to save their lives and how they get way too much credit for it or maybe too much of a pass for it. And the interesting thing about Destiny 2 is that it's very obviously written as more of like, a, there's a lot of like comedy moments or like comic relief in it. Whereas the first Destiny, I feel like was very much like, a, you know, it's very like Call of Duty like where it's just like, oh, this is grim. This is serious. This is like, you know, Zack Snyder, uh, you know, depressing gameplay. And it's pretty obvious that they tried to like lift the curtain a little bit in Destiny 2 because like one of the lead characters who's the robot, Cade, um, he's like, has like, I mean, I'm going to say funny lines, but I'm using air quotes when I say funny because I think that a lot of people who play this game probably think that he is funny. And it's just my sense of humor that every time he says something, I just like roll my eyes and I'm like, oh, that was so obviously written to be like funny and quirky that it's just like really annoys me. And it seems to be that kind of game where it's like, you get to a point um, later in the game where you meet this ship AI. There's like a crashed ship on one of the planets and it has an AI inside of it. And like the AI has like kind of like a split personality. And there's like the funny, like cheerful AI that usually talks first. And it's always like the, oh, you know, we're we're happy to help you. We're glad you're here with us. We're going to give you your mission updates. And then sometimes after that AI stops talking, like the the split personality AI has a more like it's a very like sarcastic like snarky like uh, j just like tones and I think that you know obviously they're trying to do you know make like a very upbeat person and then like oh but wouldn't it be so funny if we had this AI be like really snarky after it and it's just like it feels like the kind of stuff that would have been funny if it were in a game like ten years ago and now it just seems like really stale and really eye-rolly and really annoying. And I'm not really, like, impressed with any of the attempts at it trying to be, like, 
funny or clever. I just find most of the attempt at humor in it to be incredibly annoying. I'm probably in the minority on that because I don't think I have the same sense of humor that a lot of like quote unquote mainstream gamers have. Um, but I just find most of the writing in the game to be like kind of unbearably annoying. Well, I can't speak to the writing in Destiny 2 as I have not played it, but I, I hear you. Uh, I think that comedy is really hard to do, especially in games. And a lot of stuff that people find funny, I often don't find funny. I mean, for example, I was just talking to somebody recently who was trying to tell me that Adam Sandler was like the funniest guy on earth. And I would like, I, I literally had no response to that what? because I was trying to just like get away and, you know, like not start a fight because I had nothing good to say in response to that. Um, and that was just like a really bizarre experience. So not saying that Destiny 2 is on the level of Adam Sandler, because I think Adam Sandler, uh, I will I will refrain comment because I again, I have nothing good to say. But yeah, I mean, I get that. I mean, it's it's hard to be funny, especially when you're making a game as big as destiny where, you know, you kind of have to take the lowest common denominator route because you need to please the most amount of people with your writing. And so there's a certain tactic that you take. You can't, you can't do certain jokes because it's not going to fly with most of the people. I mean, when you make a game that's that big, I mean, it's, I think it's got its own set of problems. Um, one thing I will say though, uh, just, you know, speaking as someone on the sidelines of this whole destiny two thing is that this is the week where, you know, I listen to a lot of game podcasts because I like to keep up with what's going on. I got my favorite shows and stuff. This is the week where every single podcast in the world is talking about Destiny 2, ourselves included, ironically enough. And I just get so fucking sick of hearing people say, oh, yeah, it's just like Destiny 1. Uh, and that's fine. It's fine. It's better than Destiny 1, but it's the same thing. And it's fine. And, like, it seems like people are not, like, super excited about it and there's some problems with it, but everybody's really hesitant to say anything bad about it. And everybody, <laughs> like... It's like that thing where people are like, oh, I don't like the shaders and I don't like this other thing and I don't like the route that they're taking with the, the microtransactions, but I'm still playing it like 12 hours a day and I still love it. And people are really afraid to like just say anything bad about it. And I'm like, fuck, if you don't like it, just fucking speak up. This game has no shortage of defenders and it's really fucking boring to hear just like episode after episode of people saying, oh, it's, you know, basically saying this is exactly the same thing as number one but they are okay with getting back on that particular hamster wheel, so they're fine. I mean, if, they, if you like it, fine, but if you got something to say, like, say that too. Like, it's, it's not like this game needs defending, you know? <laughs> yeah, it can get pretty annoying. I noticed that on Twitter too, where it, like, you know, everybody... I, I just like the amount of sheer hyperbole that people use on Twitter. Like, I mean, it just, like, never ceases to amaze me how people are like, like, oh, Destiny 2, this is, like the best feeling shooter uh, this is my okay this is my least favorite thing that people do on twitter maybe not my least favorite but it's like up there with with video game criticism where they're like somebody will say like oh destiny 2 this is my this is the best mechanical shooter i've played since and they will name x game which says absolutely nothing about their opinion on the game because it's like okay well have you not played this and this and this and this and this game between the X game that you named and Destiny 2. Like, it's just such an empty opinion to give. Like, oh, Destiny 2 is the most mechanically sound shooter I've played since Halo 2. And it's like, well, what, is, what does that even mean? Like, I, I just cannot stand when people do that. And people do it with video games and movies all the time. And, like, they, I think people think they're having a really profound opinion about it. Like, basically saying, like, oh, everything between this and that was trash, and this is, like, 
as good as the old thing that's really good. But it's like if that's your go to like opinion on something, maybe you should. It's like it's it doesn't qualify with anything like them saying like, oh, well, I've played this and this and this game. It either it makes them sound like they've played literally every game since X game and Y game. And it's I'm just always amazed at how many people do that and how much hyperbole people use on Twitter to describe things. And it's incredibly annoying. Yeah, well, I mean, that too, and it's like, it's like I've heard that 32 times last week. It's like, oh, <laughs> no one's got the gunplay nailed as well as Bungie does. Bungie does guns like nobody else does. Those guns feel so good. Okay, maybe that's true, but, like, what about the rest of the shit in the game? Like, to me, like, there's got to be more to talk about it than just that. I mean, and getting back to, like, the what kind of game it is, it's like an MMO where, you know, I've bounced off. I haven't tried a lot of MMOs, but everyone I've tried, I've, like, just not liked at all. And so I, I think there's just like a certain personality that like that kind of gets into that game or maybe it doesn't need to be the best on certain certain areas. But as long as it delivers like a predictable, comfortable, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, like a vanilla ice cream kind of thing. If it gives a pretty good vanilla, people are happy with that. <laughs> and there's a reason that vanilla is like the most popular flavor. Uh, you know, daiquiri ice is like not for everybody. So that's fine. But. It gets really boring to listen to, and I get really tired of seeing, like, all this praise, even though people, it seems like they have some things to talk about that are maybe not so positive, but everybody is just like, vanilla's great, love vanilla, it's wonderful, Destiny 2 is awesome, love it, so, whatever. <laughs> I'm tired of talking about it, I'm tired of hearing about it, let's talk about other things, unless you have anything else you want to wrap up on. That is it. I know I was like, oh yeah, I have a couple quick updates about Destiny 2, and then talked about it for, like, half an hour, but I promise I'm done talking about Destiny 2, we can move on. All right, let me jump in with something a little bit different. Um, so, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, I'm sure you've heard of it, right? Oh, God, yes. Who hasn't? Okay, exactly, right? If you're on social media of any kind, I'm sure that you have heard of Battlegrounds. I mean, it's been the game this year. People are already talking about it as game of the year, despite the fact that it's still in, what is it, like open beta or something? I don't, it's, not, it's not finished. It's... Uh, some kind of whatever phase in beta that it's in. <laughs> uh, for people that don't know, Battlegrounds is basically the Hunger Games. And I'm kind of surprised that Suzanne Collins hasn't sued anybody about this because it is literally the Hunger Games. I mean, it is like a bunch of people get dropped off on an island. There's a force field around the island. You run in, find weapons, and whoever is the last person standing is the winner. I mean, that that's like the Hunger Games. That is, that's what that's about. <laughs> uh, so... It's a mod of whatever game, Arma or something. I don't know. I haven't played it myself because I don't spend a lot of time on PC, but I have watched videos because I was like, oh, what is this PUBG thing people keep talking about on Twitter? What is that thing? Oh, let me go look it up. Oh, okay, it's Battlegrounds. And I watched a few videos. So I got a pretty good feel for what it is. Not really my thing, and I'm not going to go play it on PC. But I have played a game called Fortnite, which is on PS4, currently also in open beta. We talked about Fortnite on the show, didn't we, Corey? We did. Yeah, a while ago. Did you play it or did you not play it? I did not, because I think whenever we were getting ready to play it, you had to have, like, a developer code to get into it. Oh, and that's right. Yeah, that's right. you that's had right. one and I didn't. Because don't you have to buy into, like, the $20 pass to play it or something like that? Yes, you are correct. I had totally forgotten about that. I thought that it was in a free beta. It is not free. It is a paid access beta. It will be free in 2018 thank you for reminding me so okay that's what happened okay anyway it is currently fortnite is currently in a paid beta this game is kind of like an mmo sort of where you 
play in this vaguely post-apocalyptic world, although it doesn't really feel very post-apocalyptic. It feels kind of like Plants vs. Zombies. <laughs> and you collect a lot of materials, you build some forts, and it's kind of like a tower defense game in that you're kind of defending your home base against these waves of zombies that keep coming. And so the idea is you want to build a bunch of walls and build traps to keep them away from your important thing that you're guarding. And you can play with up to like four other people and then you go in this giant, whatever, whatever, whatever. I talked about it. It was fun for like a week or two. And then the grind just really set in and I lost interest and I stopped playing it. But they recently put out an informational update last week saying, hey, guys, you guys like that Battlegrounds, right? Well, we got Battlegrounds now. And so I was like, what? They added an entire new mode. It's not called Battlegrounds. It's called like, I don't know, shoot your friends or something. I, don't, I have no <laughs> idea what it's called. Basically, it doesn't matter because it is it is exactly Battlegrounds in Fortnite. So if you bought Fortnite or you have access to it on PS4, Xbox One, or PC, you basically forget everything that you knew about the main game. None of that matters anymore. And there's this whole new mode, which is exactly like Battlegrounds. You get in a plane, you jump down onto an island, there's a force field around the island, there's 100 people in there. You run around and find a weapon as soon as you can, and then everybody kills everybody until there's only one person left. That is literally what Battlegrounds is. That is literally what this new mode in Fortnite is. The exact same thing. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I've already got Fortnite, and it's not going to cost me anything to download this update. I'll check this out, and I'll just see what it's like. And to be honest, it's actually a lot more fun than the main game. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> Which is weird. I mean, it's weird because I think there's there's things to like about Fortnite, but it didn't keep my interest. But I think this new mode is actually more exciting and more immediate and more, I don't know, I, I, don't, I hesitate to say visceral, but it kind of is because when you start this mode, you get dropped down, you get to choose where you want to, you know, parachute down onto this island. And then you immediately know, like, everybody out there is going to kill you. Like, you have no friends. There's no clans or groups in the game. So, yeah, they might add that later. So it's everybody versus everybody, and it's just like the stress, the immediate stress level is really high because you're afraid that anybody that sees you, if they found a gun first, like they're going to take you out immediately. So there's that whole, like, you know, most dangerous game vibe it's got going for it, which is probably why everybody likes Battlegrounds, which is probably another reason why people liked uh, Hunger Games as well. But it was pretty, it was pretty exciting. Uh, I, I got to say, I did not play it for very long because it was a little bit too stressful for me. I don't, I don't like PvP very much in general. And the thought of, like, everybody on this island hunting everybody else, while it seems cool in practice, for me, not my jam. Just, I got really stressed out. I think I made it to the 14th survivor. That's as high as I got. So there was me plus 13 other people, and I got taken out by number 13. Um, so that was okay for me, and I'm like, all right, that's enough. I'm going to just, I've tasted this, and I'm done. I don't want any more. But my son, who is eight years old, uh, saw me playing this, and he is super into this mode. He loves it. He like plays it constantly, and he has gotten as far as second place. So he is he is either killed or survived longer than like ninety eight other people, and he does it pretty consistently too. He's really good, and uh, he's never won though. But he he digs it a lot. He's really into that. And so just a heads up to people out there: if you have Fortnite, you can get this update for free. If you are on the fence about Fortnite. I think the main game is still worth trying. I mean, I think it's a good time for a week or two. And then you've got this whole other extra mode that will give you more value for your 20 bucks or whatever the buy-in is. And if you're a person who 
has wanted to check out what Battlegrounds is about, but you either don't have a PC that can run it, or you just don't want to play on PC, or whatever, this is a very, very close approximation to what it is. I mean, it's not as complicated. It's not, you know, it's not as nuanced. It doesn't have the same weapons. It doesn't have vehicles. I mean, it's not a one-for-one comparison. But if you want just the basic experience of being inside this closed space with, like, 99 other people who are all gunning for you, like, this is, this is a pretty close approximation. So heads up that this is out there to try, and I think it's pretty exciting and definitely more exciting than the main game in Fortnite. So, Corey, have you ever wanted to kill 99 other people at once? <laughs> I, you know, I actually... Oh, well, I haven't. Let's start there. I have not wanted to do that. Um, but I... You know, as much as I've heard about this game, uh, about PUBG, and have seen it, and have, you know, because, like, this is, like, the number one game on Twitch. It's, like, taken over, like, Overwatch and all these other games, and it's, like, the hot, it's the hot shit, you know, and has been all summer, and... I I feel embarrassed because I didn't even know that's what this like I didn't know that that was the premise of the game until you just explained it to me like I knew everybody was on this landscape everybody was fighting each other I figured it was every man for itself but I didn't realize it was like a Hunger Games thing until you just talked about it so it's interesting to to know that um, but I have a couple of thoughts about this uh, the first one is um, I will be interested to see if. Um, this game mode sort of like usurps Fortnite's like game mode that they were going for because that would be kind of fascinating to me like oh we built this whole game oh wait we're gonna add this popular game mode that mirrors exactly what another game is and like what if that ends up being better than the other game mode and the second thing is um whenever you were talking about about being like uh and sort of like this visceral you know like one versus 99 sort of um, you know, stressful scenario. I, I pretty much share your um, your thoughts on that, but it reminds me a lot of of uh, whenever we would play uh, uh, the division and go in uh, the the what's it called the dead zone, the dark zone, the dark, dark zone. zone. Um, because that's kind of how it was in the dark zone. It was like a, I mean, it was PvP and PVE in there, but it was like an every man for himself. You know, like can I trust you? You know, that kind of thing and. Although I ultimately think the dark zone is maybe like a little bit too stressful for me, I actually really value the time that we spent in the dark zone together. And I even went into the dark zone a few times by myself because I just wanted to like to test the limits of what the game mode was. And it's kind of one of those like things where, you know, it, you, it like pushes you out of your comfort zone. And even if you're not actively enjoying it, you still remember it very well because it's like, something you're not used to playing it's something scary it's something stressful it's something interesting um something maybe unusual for you to be playing and like whenever we played the dark zone and uh, the division whenever we had that one really awful um encounter with that one guy who was like a total dick um i i mean i wrote like a whole piece about that on my blog and that's like one of my favorite pieces i've ever written and it comes out of like a really stressful game mode that i really probably would never have experimented with if it hadn't been for playing with you guys so like i feel like that's the kind of experience that i would get if i played battlegrounds because like i'm not really into that kind of game but i could see how it would be like so high stress and so like atypical of what i would usually play that it would be memorable in that regard even if it's not maybe my favorite thing to play 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely goes to show that there is value in games that are maybe not necessarily fun. I mean, I think a lot of people would say that Battlegrounds was really fun, and my son really enjoys it. He doesn't feel nearly as stressed out as I did for whatever reason. (laughs) And, you know, clearly a lot of people think it's fun to watch, but I think it's pretty fun to watch. Like, watching him, I think, is way more enjoyable to me than playing it myself. Uh, So I can can understand why people are really into it. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, games, as we said before, don't necessarily have to be fun if they have some other value to them. Maybe they make you feel stressed or they make you feel some other feeling that you wouldn't ordinarily feel or they put you in a situation where you just ordinarily wouldn't be. And then you can learn something about yourself. You can learn something about other people uh, or just learn about your preferences. Or I mean, I think there's definitely learning to ha- that can happen in any game, especially, like you said, when you get out of your comfort zone. So for me, this was definitely outside of my comfort zone a lot. And it got me thinking that when the actual Battlegrounds launches, it's going to be launching on... Xbox One, which is kind of unfortunate because I only have one, and I'm sure that if I was going to play this, I would want to like group up again. Um, it's going to be eventually coming to PS4 as well. I cannot imagine that they would be only on Xbox One because that seems like a lot of money left on the table for these guys. It might be a timed exclusive or whatever, but we should we should uh, do a couple of rounds of this when it get when it comes out. I mean, probably really stressful. It would be like playing like the Dark Zone all the time, which is, I felt like, really stressful as well. Uh, but also, you know, like you said, it, it, it created some fun memories. It gave us something to think about. And, you know, like after you're done, once you wash away some of the PTSD scars from that time, you know, you do, you do feel like, I don't know, a stronger person for having survived it, maybe. Yeah, that's really true. Like, you both know that you shared some kind of, like, death-defying, like almost like a hazing type experience where like you went through hell together and it was an experience and you shared it with somebody and you'll never forget it. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, I don't want to equate it with like being a nom or anything, but that's kind of what I think of as like, Oh my God. Remember that time that we uh, went in battlegrounds and we took like second, third and fourth. Oh, what a crazy night that was, you know, like it would totally be like one of those things. Yeah, we would never uh, rank that high, though. But, you know, you get the idea. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how it goes over on Xbox, because that was like during Microsoft's press conference at E3. That was one of their like big guns they brought out was like, oh, we're getting Battlegrounds exclusively on Xbox. And I feel like everybody was like, what? Whenever that happened, because it's kind of how I felt about like like super hot, because super hot was like a year timed exclusive on Xbox one. And I was like why wouldn't they bring that to PlayStation 4? Because, like, obviously the bigger audience is going to be on the PlayStation 4. Like, it's it's pretty apparent that Microsoft is finding these indie devs that they think are going to produce darlings or have produced PC-only darlings and, like, probably giving them a shitload of money to bring their uh, their games to their console for, you know, either full exclusivity or a timed, uh, timed exclusivity. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that Battlegrounds will eventually be on PlayStation 4, but I don't even know if I would really play it. I mean, if it's cheap or if it's free or if it's in some kind of beta, maybe. But if they're going to bring it out and it's going to be like a $60 game, I mean, I probably would not play it at that price. Yeah, totally. That would be like totally Gamefly for a weekend. We'd play a couple rounds and be done with it. But, (laughs) you know, the other thing that we haven't really considered is that maybe it's coming to Xbox One because the game is still in beta and Xbox has a stronger early access program than PlayStation does. I mean, looking, I mean, I don't have, I'm not in front of my Xbox one right now, but I know that like a lot of the games I have are like early betas. Uh, it's like, you know, elite dangerous was on there. Um, that one Astroneer was on there. There's a, I mean, I, I don't have a list in front of me, but there's a lot more like beta early access games on Xbox one than there is on PS4. 
And so maybe that's a reason why they're more leaning that way. I mean, I'm sure that Microsoft gave them a bunch of money as well um, because they are really hurting for exclusives right now. But I think that might be a big factor too, for good or for ill, because honestly, I don't like beta games. I don't like unfinished games. I'm definitely like, finish your fucking game and then give it to me and then let me see what it's like. <laughs> and even when you're finished, you're still not finished because you're going to patch it to hell afterwards. But I'm not, I'm not really down with the whole this is just what we have running right now and play it if you want to and we'll fix it as we go. Like, I'm not, I'm not a beta guy. So it's not a huge pull for me. I would much rather uh, play a finished version. But uh, we'll see what happens. Um, I mean, if nothing else, maybe we could play uh, a round of this early release on Xbox One if it's free or if it's not too expensive or whatever. I don't know what their plan for it is. I cannot imagine that they will not cash in on it. But we'll deal with that when the time comes. Uh, but anyway... Getting back to the actual topic, uh, this this mode is now in Fortnite. If you have Fortnite, it's a pretty good pretty good version of Battlegrounds. If you want to just get a taste of that on PS4 or or wherever you are, so there we go. That is that. And am I ready to move on? Uh, I hope so. Okay, good. I was waiting to see if you were going to like pitch it back to me and like maybe make the transition or maybe I'll just I'll just take care of that myself. I'll just do that. I will make my own transition. <laughs> uh, and uh, I also played another game, uh, which I would like to talk about right now, called Senko no Ronde 2, which is developed and published by... I don't even know how to pronounce her name. Dejica? Dead? Eh, I guess. Deg? Eh, okay. Whatever. D-E-G-I-C-A. <laughs> Uh, just launched September 7th on PS4 and PC. This is a sequel to a game of the same name, which was on Xbox 360. This is a little bit hard to describe. It's kind of like a fighting game because it's 1v1 in an arena. You're kind of looking top down. But it's also like a bullet hell shooter. And those two things don't necessarily seem to go together when you have those concepts side by side, but this game does it pretty well. Basically, you have a list of, I don't know, I don't know how many characters, 15, 20 characters or something like that. Each one is in a mecha suit, like a, you know, various robot shapes, some of them cooler than others. And you pick one, you go into an arena, which is just effectively like an open space. Like there's no environmental barriers. There's nothing to jump on. Like it's just an open space. And you shoot bullets at the other person. So you're, you're flying around, dodging, dashing, blocking. Each character, as you would expect, has a variety of, you know, regular attacks, special attacks, blocks, dodges, etc., etc., etc. And you just kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to describe. It's hard to describe. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm doing a very poor job of describing this, and I do this all the time, but... If you can imagine two people in an arena and they just like have like a jillion bullets like firing at each other, that's basically what this game is. Uh, ironically, it seems like a giant chaotic mess when you look at it on YouTube or like if you uh, go check out the trailers or whatever. You just it's really hard to tell what's going on. It's just not clear. But when you play it, it does feel like chaos for the first you know a few minutes that you're learning the game, but then once you get into it, it there actually is a pretty good uh, series of fundamentals there. The controls make sense once you figure them out and once you get through the tutorials, and there is a pretty good amount of strategy into learning your particular character's quirks and how that plays out with the other person, and 
it's 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 interesting. Um, I can't say that I played it like a lot because once I beat the arcade mode a couple times, I kind of felt like I had the gist of it and I didn't really feel the need to beat it with like every single character. Um, but flying around and shooting lasers and shooting bullets is uh, surprisingly a good time. I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily want to play it as much as I would want to play like a Street Fighter or something like that. But I think in terms of design, the challenge of melding a bullet hell shoot em up and a fighter has been accomplished pretty successfully here. Uh, on the other hand, I know that fighting games are not traditionally known for their story modes. And this has like one of the worst story modes I've ever seen. It's just <laughs> the, the core mechanics and the, the fighting is there and that's fine. But like, if you want a little bit more than that, like if you want to work towards something or at the very least get like a basic story, I mean, story is kind of the rage in fighting games now with, uh, all the stuff from Netherrealm and other people out there, they realize that, you know, story is kind of important to people who play these games. This game has... The arcade mode is nothing. Like, it's like you you, you go off and fight a dozen people at the end. It is literally nothing but credits, which I thought was, like, really ridiculous in this day and age. And then you go to the story mode, and it tells you up front, hey, uh, BT Dubs, this is a story mode that we actually used in another game from 2010, but we're going to cut and paste it and include it here for you. I don't know why. This is not that game. This is not that story. But the story is here from this other game for you to enjoy because reasons. And so you can play through this story mode, which is basically like a very, very non-interactive visual novel with like a ton of talking. And it's characters that you don't know who they are and you don't know what their relationships are. and You don't know what they're talking about and a lot of jargon. Very, very, very like low-grade anime feeling to it, and I, I do not mean that in a good way. I mean that in a very bad way. So, I I noped my way out of that story mode as quickly <laughs> as I could, and I just did not care anymore. But the core fighting is fine. I think uh, fans of mecha or or bullet hell shooters might be interested in checking this out. And if you could get it on the cheap, I think it would be fine. But there's not really a lot to it. There's not a lot of modes. There's not a lot of content. It's kind of like the core the core, you know, arcade mode or PvP mode, 1v1, whatever, versus, sorry, getting all my modes mixed up because we're jumping genres on the show so much. <laughs> um, yeah, if you like that, go for it. But, like, there's not really a lot else here. It's not going to hold up as long as something like a Mortal Kombat or an Injustice where they put a lot more into it to keep you playing and coming back. This is just a real bare-bones sort of thing. And, honestly, it doesn't even really look all that good. It looks very much like it could have been on the 360 and they just ported it. Like, there's no real fancy graphics. The The character models are pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't matter for the most part because the camera zooms out pretty far. And so you're not getting a mega close-up look. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you guys could have prettied this up a little bit. You know, it made the character models a little fancier. Given them a few more animations or something. But it's not bad. Like, it's not bad. I think it's interesting. Very, very interesting. It's not something that you would see every day, and I think that uh, for a select group of people, this will be a pretty cool release. Um, not my jam, especially, but I did think it was it was good for what it was, and uh, I did spend maybe, like, two days on it and enjoyed that time, although I will probably not be going back. So, Corey, <laughs> do, you, do you like the idea of a fighting game which blends bullet hell in there? This does not sound like my jam at all. Yeah, I can't really see you playing this at all. That was kind of a rhetorical question, even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. It's it's a really super niche product. It's kind of cool in some ways, but you know, if this if this sounds like your thing, you probably have already bought it. If this does not sound like your thing, there's no reason why you would even know it existed. It's a really 
really small fringe game. But there it is, Senko no Rondi 2 by Dejika, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the last time you got one of these was on the 360. If you want another one, here it is. And that's basically all I have to say about it. So <laughs> Let's move on to something that is way more anticipated and something which, like Destiny 2, I'm already sick of hearing about. Oh, Corey, no. let's talk about... <laughs> Twitter just won't shut up, you know. Uh, let's talk about Dishonored, Death of the Outsider, sir. Yeah, okay, so full disclosure, I will be reviewing this on Game Critics. Um, I have a publisher copy, and I'm really excited about it. Um, it should come as no surprise to anybody. If uh, you have known me for more than five minutes, you probably know that um, Dishonored is the kind of game that I'm really into. Uh, I really like Dishonored. I really like Prey, which was Arcane's uh, other game that came out this year. I really love Deus Ex. These are all games that are very similar, very, um, you know, slices of open worlds, uh, first person. You can kill everybody. You can ignore everybody. You can knock out everybody. You can play it very much at your own pace. You know, there is several ways to go about any given situation. These games are... One that there is like no game that could be more of my jam than games like this. And I have played Dishonored Death of the Outsider, which just came out. Um, Arcane put it out, Bethesda published it. It came out on the 15th, which was last Friday, so it's actually only been out for a few days. Um, on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Uh, this is a it's kind of like a standalone expansion for Dishonored 2 that features a main the main character of it is billy lurk also known as megan foster she is a very um uh secretive woman i guess you could say she made her debut in the dlc for the first dishonored she was in she was a side character in all of dishonored 2 and now she is playable in dishonored death of the outsider um basically Death of the Outsider follows her um, efforts to try to kill the Outsider. And if you don't know anything about Dishonored lore, basically every main character of every game, the Outsider is this kind of god-like character who lives in what's called the Void. And it's kind of like his his realm, I guess, if you will, his god-like realm. And he picks he can basically see everything he can see past and present he can see what everybody's doing he kind of like is all knowing and he's in the first game he was probably the most interesting character in the first game he also had a really 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 sexy voice actor in the first game and then they replaced his voice actor in the second game so he immediately got less interesting and he was in the second game a lot more which made him less interesting because the best way to spoil a mystery is to talk about it and reveal it more. And that's kind of what they did in the second one, but he's still an interesting character. He's just less interesting than he was in the first game. He's the guy that gives everybody their magic powers. Everybody in Dishonored that you play as has some sort of like magic abilities. Like blink was the big thing in the first game where you could teleport. That's sort of like one of the big hooks of the Dishonored game is that it has like a teleportation power, but that's not it. There's a lot of other powers. Um, I'm not going to go into them, but the outsider gives the player their mark on their hand and basically gives that person their own set of like special skills. And uh, Billy Lurk in Dishonored Death of the Outsider is partnering with her old uh, protege, I guess you could say Dowd, who is the assassin from the first game 
basically what you go into the first game thinking that Dowd is going to be like the final boss and he's like the one who caused all this chaos in the city and you go after him to kill him. Um, and he is in this DLC, so maybe you killed him, maybe you didn't. But I guess the the um, canon is that he did not die in the game. So he is in this game, you play as Billy, you rescue him, and then you both make a plan to uh, find the outsider and to kill him, basically. I don't know. I'm sure because this is a Dishonored game, you probably don't actually have to kill the outsider, despite the game being called Death of the Outsider, because one of the main things about Arcane's games is you can basically go through the entire game without killing anybody, uh, final bosses included. So I will be surprised if they give you no option but to kill him at the end, but I, I haven't gotten there yet, so I'm not really sure how it's going to come together. Um, I don't really have a ton to say about the game because basically this is one of those DLCs that's like, it's just like more Dishonored. Like if you like Dishonored 1, it's more of that. If you like Dishonored 2, it's more of that. If you didn't like Dishonored, this is not going to change your mind about how you feel about Dishonored, because it's basically just more of the same thing. Um, that being said, I am enamored with Dishonored, so this is just more of that kind of gameplay that I love, because I'm all about sneaking around, I'm all about multiple ways to get to objectives, I'm all about teleporting onto rooftops, and teleporting from lamppost to lamppost, and exploring every nook and cranny of every person's house and every apartment and every office building and looking for every coin and every treasure I can find. This is just like, uh, this is just heaven for me. I love Dishonored and it feels nice to be able to settle in and play this again. It just feels like it's like coming home for Christmas whenever you're at college. It just feels nice to be able to settle in and just play something that so pleasant that you're so used to that just feels right again. Um, Brad, I don't think you have ever been into the, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I recall you playing the first Dishonored and being okay on it. And that's your experience with the franchise. Is that right? No, I actually did not like it. Oh, I, I'm damn not, it. okay. You were, I mean, you were close. I mean, um, I, you know, it, it's funny as I was listening to you talk, I was like, thinking about what I've said on the show tonight, and I'm like, God, I feel like I've been kind of negative tonight and I don't want to be too negative tonight. So I'm like, I'm just going to let Corey talk. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about like how I actually really dislike Dishonored, but I'm just going to be <laughs> quiet and let him, let him have his moment in the sun. But since you uh, called me out on it, uh, yeah, just not my thing. Um, I don't like these kind of games in general, like the, I don't know, like the, the whatever. I'm not even sure what you can call this kind of game. I think people say it's like immersive sim or something like that, which is, kind of popping up more often as a genre title. I'm not sure exactly what the parameters of that are, but I'm not really big on first-person games in general. And I just, I could not get on with with the first, um, the first game. I just, it just didn't feel right to me. Like, I couldn't be stealthy the way that I wanted to. Like, I kept getting caught, and it was really frustrating. And the systems didn't feel good. I didn't like the art style. I didn't like the story. I just, it just wasn't for me. Like nothing about it clicked for me at all. So I, I kind of, I didn't even finish the first game. I, th I think I stopped about halfway and I just was done. I didn't play the second one. And I was like, yeah, was, this is just not my series. Not my thing. Well, that's okay. I mean, no, I, I respect that. It's not your thing. I know it's not for everybody. And really like, there's probably like no amount of negative things you could say about Dishonored that would like, 
make me feel bad or like change my opinion. So even if you were like, oh, I hate this and I hate that and this is stupid and this doesn't make sense, I would be like, okay, Brad, that's fine, but I still love this game. <laughs> so um, uh, the I think the most, maybe not the most interesting thing about Dishonored Death the Outsider, but a couple things that pop out to me that I like um, immediately that are a little bit different than normal Dishonored things is... Uh, the, the thing that I find fascinating about the Dishonored franchise is that the first game had Blink, which was the teleport ability. And then the second game built on it, and you have, because you could play as Emily in the second game, and she does not have a direct copy of Blink, because every character kind of has their own skill set. But her, uh, she, it was more or less the same thing, but in her version, like, sort of like a shadow arm, like, reached out, and it kind of, like, pulled her to that surface in an arc. So it kind of, like, it just changed it enough for it to feel different, but it was still familiar. And Arcane have done it again because you're not playing as either of the characters from the first two games. Uh, Billy Lurk, her version of Blink is actually pretty well done. Um, you can, you hold the left trigger, and it brings up sort of like a silhouette in the future. Like, there's an arc, and you can see, like, a silhouette of her character model. And you can place it somewhere. And then if you let go of the left trigger, the silhouette stays there. And you can move around anywhere you want. And as long as you stay with an eye shot of the silhouette, you can look back and press L2 again, and she teleports to it. So it sets up some really interesting scenarios where, like, you can't uh, place the silhouette through glass or through, like, bars or grates, but you can teleport through grates if you place it, like, on the other side of a grate and then you're somewhere else and you can see it, which might sound confusing. But there was, like, a situation last night where I was playing and I was up on this, like, lamppost or, like, behind the stage area and there was a sewer underneath me and she has another ability that lets her kind of like leave her body and like move around the environment to it basically stops time and she can like move her vision around the environment and just basically look at everything which is nice it's a very accommodating feature because most of the time uh the dishonors will have a, a view that kind of like temporarily lets you like look through walls a little bit but this one you can actually like full on like leave her body and like move around the environment so you can place um the teleport silhouettes while you're out of your body so i like flew down the stairs and like under this grate and I like placed a teleport where I would be in eyesight through the grate above the stage and then I resumed my position where she was up on the stage and like looked down through the grate and I was able to just teleport there and I think it, it sets up some very interesting like um like tactical options for how you can play the game and I appreciate the fact that Arcane is kind of doing something different with the teleport ability with every game that they come out with it's just a nice little small like like, you know, a little bit of extra elbow grease they're putting into the game rather than just copying the exact same teleport mechanic over and over again. But something that I don't like about Death of the Outsider is, as far as I can tell, you cannot upgrade Billy Lurk's abilities. And that was one of the big things of the first two games is you can find these, like, relics, these runes around the environment, and you can cash them in to upgrade your abilities. And my first, uh, my favorite ability from the first two games because all the characters in the first two games share this ability is one where if you kill someone stealthily and you have to kill them you can't knock them out to get this um their body basically vanishes it like turns to ash as soon as they die and that upgrade alone um basically makes me because i always played through dishonored the first time totally stealthily knocking everyone out no kills no alarms because that's just how i like to play those games like a total ninja 
But my second playthrough, I always do stealthy, but I kill everyone. I murder everyone in every level, but I do it to where their body vanishes, and it makes it so much easier. It makes you feel like a really fast, lethal ninja, and that's the way that I like to play those games. Um, but Billy does not have that ability. Billy ability? She does not have that ability. Um... She doesn't have it, and it kind of bothers me because I was, like, looking forward to my second play of the game and being able to just, like, run around the environment and, like, stealthily kill everyone and have their bodies vanish. But as far as I could tell, she doesn't have that ability, and she also can't upgrade her abilities. Like, usually you can upgrade the teleport abilities to where it, like, teleports farther, or you can, like, you know, go longer or something like that, and you can't upgrade her abilities, which I'm a little bit concerned because this has a new game plus, but I'm kind of looking at the game thinking like, okay, well, if you don't allow me to upgrade my abilities, what's the point of a new game plus? And maybe it'll get there and maybe not. Um, but uh, that's probably my biggest, I don't know, maybe like criticism so far of it. I mean, I, I adore this game. It's the kind of game I did this with Prey where it's the kind of game where I can just sit down and play for hours and hours and hours at a time. Like, the first mission, if you're an absolute pro, could probably take you, like, 15 minutes to beat. And it took me, like, two hours because I'm the kind of guy that explores everything. Um, but uh, I'm just a little bit worried about the upgrade E-ness. And I'm also worried about the not being able to hide bodies thing or not being able to make the bodies vanish because that's one of my favorite things from the first two games. But, I mean, it is what it is. Those are very small complaints on top of more of a game that I'm already in love with and expect to continue loving the more I play it, I think. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know how large this add-on is, but as something that just ends up being kind of a standalone, I mean, you can only expect so much from it. I mean, I, I guess it's probably just, you know, nice for fans of the game like yourself to get a little bit more, even though it may not be as large or as in-depth as the other ones. Um, I, I mean, just knowing what I know, maybe just the, the story choices or like who you choose to kill or not kill would be the reason to replay rather than going through with different powers or being able to play much more differently. I mean, I'm just kind of just stabbing in the dark on that, but <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. I mean, it sounds it sounds very much like, like you said, kind of more of the same though. I mean, there's no reason for anybody who didn't get on with uh, Dishonored in the past to jump in now though, is there? Absolutely not. If you did not like Dishonored... I would definitely not recommend starting here. This is almost like a Mass Effect 3 kind of thing because all of the Dishonoreds build on the stories from the last ones. So even if you did choose to start here, you're going to have no fucking clue what's going on because all the characters... Um, I mean, I don't know. The way to, the way Arcane does their Dishonored stories is actually kind of fascinating because like uh, Billy Lurk plays such a big part of Dishonored 2, but if you didn't play the Dishonored 1 DLC, you won't even know who she is going into Dishonored 2, which is kind of like maybe not the best way to do it like maybe she should have had a role in the first dishonored but um i mean i've i'm somebody who's played every scrap of dlc for all the dishonored so i'm like fully on board with the story but yeah if you haven't played anything up to this point i would not recommend um this being the place to start but the good news is that it is cheaper i think um i mean the download for it was 24 gigs on playstation 4 which is substantially bigger than i thought it was going to be um, and I know, I think it's only like 20 or 30 bucks in the PSN and they sell an edition that comes with Dishonored 2. So they pack them both together. And I feel like that's only like 50 or 60. So if you're someone who was thinking about playing Dishonored 2, I would pick up the version that has both of them in it because then you get all of Dishonored 2 and you get the Death of the Outsider DLC packed in. And I'm pretty sure it's like 50 or 60. So it's cheaper than, you know, full price Dishonored 2 was at launch. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Right on, right on. Well, you know, I'm sure that it's uh, it's nice to get more of that for fans who have been following the entire thing all the way through. Uh, I will probably stay away, but I know a lot of people <laughs> are really digging on this game this year, and uh, a lot of people were very excited, as I kind of suggested in a roundabout way at the beginning of the segment. Uh, my Twitter feed is just on fire with people talking about this right now, <laughs> and people posting clips and talking about stuff and it's really it's kind of funny because i know i mean i played the first one and in fact now that i think about it i actually did play a few minutes of the second one and i did not get very far uh because i just did not care for it but i was looking at twitter and i was getting just deluged with like all these videos and people saying oh look at my thing and look what i did and talking about xyz and i watched this one clip that somebody posted they're like oh yeah this is so badass and i watched the clip and like (laughs) i I just had no idea, like, what I was even looking at. Like, it was just, like, somebody got killed, and then he blinked over, and then somebody died. And I'm like, what was I what was I supposed to see in that video? Like, I don't get it. Like, I'm so far removed from the series. Somebody posting what is ostensibly a badass moment that I'm supposed to be, like, awed by. I'm like, I totally missed the point of what you were even trying to show me on that. So I am <laughs> definitely not in the dishonored circle, and that is that is okay with me. But I'm very glad you enjoy it. Happy that you're... Uh, Happy you're in that groove. I mean, between this and uh, Prey, this has been a pretty good year for you. Yeah, no kidding. And, I mean, I feel like Dishonored, Death of the Outsider, will very likely end up on my top ten for the end of the year. I mean, it's like it's just like the perfect marrying of, like, the, these are exactly the kind of games that I like. I love just being able to get lost in a world that doesn't pressure you to do anything in a certain way and doesn't pressure you to do anything quickly or anything... Um, uh, you know, and, and like a fast pace, like in a Call of Duty way. That's my favorite thing about these games is that it, there, there's no sense of urgency and you just get to drop in, do everything exactly how you want to do it, um, as quickly or as slowly as you want to do it and really like canvas the environment as much as you want to or you can just go straight for the kill if you want to. And yeah, Prey was, I mean, Prey was an arcane game too, so it was very much like this and Dishonored is just more of that. And I... I just love this genre of game. I absolutely adore it. It's perfect for me. Right on, right on. Well, I I will look forward to you talking about this in December, I'm sure. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we have one more game to talk about, right? Yeah, one more, and then we'll move on to a question that someone had sent in. Um, but I will talk about my game first. I feel like I feel like I've been a little bit more negative than I wanted to be this evening. I don't know quite how that happened. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to, uh, be Mr. Downer all the time. So I'm going to end on a strong note with a game that I absolutely adore that I'm really, really pleased with. And that I really think is a very smart game. Ironically, it has a very generic, unknown, weird, like you would never look twice at this ever. Like, I don't think I would even look twice at this if the developer had not sent me a code, but it's called... Xmorph Defense, which tells you basically nothing about anything. It sounds so random and like it should be like $14 in a bargain bin somewhere. But it is actually a very excellent game. It's by Xor Studios, who I've never heard of before. Launched August 30th on PS4, Xbox One, and PC. I am playing it on PS4 right now. So this is an active tower defense game. And I think... Most people probably know what that is, but just in case you don't. So the tower defense, as 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 the genre goes, you place towers along a path that enemies are going to go on, and then hopefully you will erect enough towers that they will 
you know, mount uh, a strong enough defense that all the enemies will be killed before they make it to your base. And that's, it's a pretty passive genre. And I don't like that genre very much because I feel like my hands are tied all the time because you make one mistake, like you put a tower in the wrong place or you put the wrong kind of tower. Enemies just like, you know, blow past it. They get to your defenses. You got to do the whole thing over again. You don't have a lot of power generally to stop that from happening. You just hope that your plan works. And then if the plan doesn't work, then you're fucked. So I don't <laughs> like the tower defense genre very much at all. I, I just don't care for it. But I do like active tower defense, which is basically the same thing as tower defense, but they give you an avatar or a character or something so that you can actually take some action. If you fuck up your plan, if you, you know, put the wrong towers on a path and then enemies are pouring through, you can actually go over there and fight back or you can change towers in the middle of the level or you can do whatever. Anything, any tower defense game that gives the player some agency to do something, to take some action in the middle of it, I think is fine. I, I like that. That's just enough for me where you still need the strategy, you still need to do the, the base building or whatever it is that you do, but it gives you a little bit of wiggle room if you're not perfect every time and it just it gives you the feeling that you can do something. I don't like the feeling of being trapped and being passive and being unable to take action. It's very frustrating. So I like active tower defense a lot more than just tower defense. And this is probably the most polished, the smartest, and the, the most player-friendly active tower defense game I've ever seen. It's it's a really, really smart game. Uh, the story is... I mean, there's not a lot of story, but it is a little bit interesting in that the player is taking on the role of alien invaders who are coming to Earth to steal its resources. So you're not really defending um, enemies. You like you are the enemy, and you are taking over the planet, which is a neat little spin. Every level starts with a big resource generator crashing into like some continent on Earth, and the player is a small little drone that gets released from that thing. Like it becomes your home base, the drone gets released, you are the drone, and it can transform into like all these different shapes to fire different kinds of guns. You have like a laser. That's good against heavy tanks. You have a regular blaster, which is good for, like, you know, little enemies. You have a bomb, which is good for, I don't know, whatever, medium-sized enemies. And then you have missiles, which are good for enemies in the air. So you can switch back and forth, and your ship, like, morphs and changes. It's pretty cool looking when you uh, cycle through the different weapons. And every single thing about this game is just really, really smart. Um, they've taken into account a lot of the mistakes this genre makes, and they have fixed basically all of them. I mean, for starters, uh, the enemies come in waves in these type of games. And in X-Morph, they give you a break between each wave. And you can tell the game when you want to start. So you can take as much time as you want to to set up your towers, to evaluate your strategy. They tell you exactly where all the enemies are going to be coming through. So there's no surprises. You know exactly what you're planning for. Uh, they let you move towers with at no cost. I mean, resource management is kind of a big part of this genre where you've only got a certain amount of money and towers cost money. And if you have to sell some back to get money, then you do that. Or if you will need to build some extra ones, you got to make sure you have enough. If you build a tower and you put it in the wrong place, you can move it anywhere on the map for free, which is amazing. If you want to uh, change the kind of tower that you have, you can do that for free, which is also amazing. Like if you, if you set up a, like a machine gun tower and you're like, oh, wait, this is wrong. I need an anti-aircraft tower. You can just change it. No problem. No penalty. Uh, it has checkpoints between each wave. So if you do really well in a mission and then you just for whatever reason fuck something up hardcore, you only have to do the last wave. You don't have to do the entire mission again, which is like a godsend because some of these levels can be really long. 
And when you get to the uh, tech tree for your drone, you you know upgrade as the game goes on. You get better weapons and more abilities. You can put those points into your skill tree. If you don't like that thing that you got, you just take it right back out and move it around. No penalty, which is great. I mean, it's like it's like as fucking player friendly as you can possibly be. And it's like they want you just to play the game and enjoy it. And they don't nickel and dime you. They don't make you feel stupid for making a choice that's bad. They don't make you. you know, they don't punish you for choosing. You know, oh, the advanced missiles looks like it's better than the flamethrower. Oh, shit, I should have got the flamethrower instead. Just do it. You can just change it. It's no problem, no penalty. You don't you don't suffer any price for that, which is great. On top of that, I mean, all that is amazing. All that is really amazing. I cannot understate how much I appreciate how much the game respects my time. Like, it does not punish me for engaging with the systems. It wants me to play this game because it is so flexible. I have enjoyed playing this game very much. I really love all these choices. But... The thing that really pushed it over the top for me is that it has a very unique feel in that it kind of, I mean, it's kind of, this has been coming up a little bit uh, often on tonight's show. It kind of feels like a bullet hell shoot 'em up a little bit, which is definitely something that is not associated with tower defense. Because when you have your enemies pouring in, there are all these other little factors that you have to take care of as the player. And it keeps you running around the field all the time. Like you've always got something to do. Even if your towers are mounting a strong defense, you always have to go and take care of things. For example, uh, some enemies will have like little healer units, and if you don't take those out right away, they will heal the enemies and make it past your towers. So you have to like whenever you see a healer show up on the field, you have to go and get it. Sometimes there are like these little uh, like artillery units, and they will take out your towers from a ways away. And the game tells you immediately when they're on the map, and it tells you which tower they're targeting. Again, something very respectful of your time. So when you see that go off, you have to go and take care of those. So you're like flying over here and take care of this thing and flying over here and take care of this thing. And sometimes random uh, aircraft will come in to kind of like harry you. And so that keeps you busy when things are kind of quiet. So it's got a really good pace, a very high pace, actually, for a, a game of the genre where even if uh, you're not trying to make up for the mistakes of putting your towers in the wrong places, like there's a lot of stuff you need to do. Like you were never sitting there bored. You're never just watching enemies file past your towers. You're never just sitting there like racking up dollars. Like you're always flying around, taking care of some threat. You're always watching what's going on on all places of the map. But I mean that in the best possible sense. Like I think it's really smart and really a neat trick that they pulled off to make it feel like it is a tower defense game, but it's also like a fucking shooter at the same time. It's like doing both and it's doing both really well. And I just, I think that is a very, very hard thing to pull off and they make it look so easy. I mean, everything about this game, very well thought out, very well considered. Like I said, very respectful of my time, which I think is very important to me. I mean, there's, I, I like have like zero criticism of this game. Like it's just like a perfect for what it is. I mean, it doesn't reinvent the wheel. If you've played tower defense games, or if, especially if you've played active tower defense games, a lot of these elements will be familiar. But at the same time, every single thing that it does is like perfect. And it looks great. I love the designs of the, uh, the aliens and your ship looks awesome. Your powers look awesome. The, uh, enemies pop oh yeah i didn't even mention every once in a while like a boss will show up and that makes it feel even more like a shooter where like after you get rid of some waves of enemies like a giant fucking robot will show up or like a giant <laughs> tank or a bomber that's got like you know it's like shooting lasers at the side and you're just like gotta shoot components of it off i mean the bosses are fucking rad like everything about this game is like is like the best i mean it's not brand new it's not breaking a lot into ground but it is done to perfection like this is if someone was to ask me what is like the best active tower defense game like i probably would point to this one this one is like amazing i really enjoy it 
this sounds like if you took just by the way you're describing it it sounds like if you took the video game vanquish and squeezed it into a tower defense game that's like the vibe that i'm getting here it feels as hectic as that i mean <laughs> if you replace the dude in vanquish with like a little ship that can transform that would be pretty close to like the feeling of it because that pace that like constant management of the battlefield that back and forth and the zipping back and forth that that actually does have a lot in common with that even though like it's a totally different genre but yeah i mean it's such a neat trick to be able to have this one thing this one aspect of the game be so considered and careful and 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 go at your own pace like enemies don't come until you're ready for them to come so you can take as long as you want to set up your defenses but man once that level starts you're fucking flying all over the place you got shit to shoot you're going back and forth and you're transforming like all the time and you're just man it's just really really cool i think it's great as an action game it's great as a tower defense game it's, it's a perfect blend and it's just i just cannot say how much i appreciate how little it punishes you i mean it gets hard it, they definitely want you to master the systems i'm playing on the easiest difficulty mode and i still think it's pretty challenging like the first couple ones were a cakewalk and then once some of the tougher enemies start showing up like i'm constantly like doing something and i'm constantly busy and it's not it's not easy so I shudder to think of what the advanced difficulties are like. So you have to master the game. Like you have to master your ship. You have to know exactly which enemy is weak to which weapon and like what, you know, study the battlefield properly and place your towers very properly. It is it is demanding in that sense. Like it is not a cakewalk under any circumstances, but it is it is on point. Like everything that it does is fair and it wants you to play and it doesn't nickel and dime you and it just... I, I just I love that attitude like it feels like the developers know they have a good product they don't need to do any stupid tricks they don't need to artificially lengthen anything that you do by you know making you start the whole level over or by making you grind for more money like that's none of that happens like this is just like the smoothest possible play experience in a very polished game with a lot of smart decisions that is really just about the gameplay and not about pulling any cheap tricks on you so I have, like, literally nothing bad to say about it. This is an amazing game. Excellent, excellent example of the genre. And these guys, this XOR Studios, um, I'm going to have to look them up and see what else they've done, if anything, because these guys have their fucking heads on straight. I'll tell you that much. This game is put together <laughs> tight, and I have nothing but respect for it. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. I'm playing a couple levels a day, just having a great time. I will be doing a full review on Game Critics, but I can say... With no reservations, if you like tower defense, or if you especially like active tower defense, pay attention. Don't don't be swayed by the super generic title. <laughs> the screenshots they put up have a very like '90s feel to them, which is kind of weird. Um, but just buy this game. Like if this, if anything I've said sounds good, if you like these genres, just get it. It's really really good. I've got absolutely nothing bad to say about it. It is fantastic. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I probably would not play this but i'm glad that you don't hate everything brad i i, <laughs> I really don't hate everything and it just you know you have to you have to not like something in order to really like something you have to really see the bad before you can really appreciate the good and uh even though i don't want to skew too negative in general and and, and definitely not on the show this is something that like after you've played a bunch of bad ones you can really see how well this one's put together so I, I love this game. I think it's really great. I th I'm just having the best time with it. Good, good. Um, do you have anything else to say about it before we move on to Q&A? No, no. Just uh, definitely recommend it. Everybody pick it up. It is worth the cash. But now let's get on to our... Uh, we have a question from a listener, don't we? 
We do. We have a single listener question this week. This is from our good friend Jez in the UK. And the question is, uh, Jez states, uh, I've just bought a copy of World of Final Fantasy secondhand for £15 as it came out 11 months ago. I get a disc, which allows me to trade in, uh, trade it in for another game in the future. Uh, if I had downloaded it from the PlayStation Store, it would have cost £50, and I'd have no physical copy to trade in in the future. Uh, whilst I want to support the developer, why won't the PlayStation Store sell their games at quote-unquote market value rather than recommended resale price? And do you think renting games, uh, for example, cheaper than paying uh, recommended retail price, is more friendly to the developer than buying secondhand? Brad, do you want to go first? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so as someone who generally likes physical media, I, I feel where Jez is coming from. And I buy, I bought you, I mean, I buy tons of used games and I know that developers don't get a cut of that, but I mean, let's, let's keep it real. Gaming is a really expensive hobby and not everybody is a millionaire. So on the one hand, I get that people make games, they have to feed their families, they have to make money, they have to have income. That is a real thing, and I respect that. At the same time, this kind of gets back to the question of, like, what is fair between the seller and what is fair to the buyer? Um, I think that, historically, it has been very slanted towards the seller and not towards the buyer. So, like, as a, as a consumer, most oftentimes, I buy a game... And that's it. Like, I have no recompense if the game is not to my taste, if I just want to, you know, do something else with it. Like, you, you can't get your money back for it. So in that sense, I feel like renting a game or buying a game used is safer for the person buying the game because, you know, 60 bucks or, you know, however that breaks down to pounds or whatever it is, it's a lot of money for a lot of people. That's a lot of money for me. It's a lot of money for a lot of folks. And in general, you can't return those. So what is your only option is to you know, as hedging your bet a little bit, you want some insurance in case this game ends up not being your thing. You want to be able to get some money back for it. So it's like, on the one hand, I get that people got to get paid and that's fine. But at the same time, I really wish that there was some other avenue. Like if you could just return a game, if you didn't like it, rather than going the used route, I would feel better about doing that. Uh, but, you know, basically it boils down to the consumer getting fucked if you buy a game and you don't like it, especially with downloads. I mean, you can't do anything with a download. You can't you can't uninstall it and give that to somebody else. I mean, you can't trade it to anybody. So I feel like that is a really not consumer-friendly practice that we've gotten into, and I don't feel like it's very fair. So on with that in mind, I feel like getting a physical disc with the, a future of possibly trading it in or renting first is really the only protection that a consumer has in most cases. I mean, I know that some places do refunds now. I know that Steam does refunds. If you uh, do that, uh, play a game in less than, what, two hours or something, and you can return it in less than two hours and get a refund. That's great. I've done that. I think that's a very pro-consumer uh, move, which I, I like very much. I don't know if you can do that on Xbox. I think you might be able to do that on Xbox. I don't think you can do it on PlayStation. So until there is a situation where a person who buys a game can get their money back, just if the fact they don't like it, or if it doesn't run properly for them or whatever, I think that you know it's only fair to wait for a sale or buy a disc and trade it in or something like that or buy buy used. Um, on the other hand, if it's something that I really like, like if I know for a fact I'm going to like a game, I will, I will buy a full, full price game to support someone. I mean, I'll go out of my way to support indies. If I think they're, 
putting out a game that I enjoy and I want to support them, I'll throw some cash their way or whatever. I mean, I think that's fine too, but I just, it's hard for me to say that I want to support developers when I feel like they don't want to support us back. You know, like I feel like it's a one way street historically and that's not really acceptable to me. So the price of that is people buying secondhand or renting. Um, what do you think, Corey? Um, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that sentiment. Um, I mean, I buy, I do a pretty healthy mix of buying stuff digitally and buying stuff physically, but I nearly buy almost everything on sale, either on sale or like on some kind of like clearance edition or something like I'll buy, uh, like Gamefly sends out sale uh, emails, like maybe once every couple months. And they generally, all their games are like $20 and below. And it's games that they have purchased that they rent out to people. And then once the popularity for those games starts dying down then they sell off some of their copies. And I buy a lot of games that way. Um, I buy a lot of games on the PSN digitally. Uh, one thing that I wish, cause I totally understand, you know, if you open your PlayStation the PlayStation network and you see a game that you want to buy and it's a year old and it's still like 50 bucks on the PSN, but you can drive, you know, 10 minutes down to GameStop and it's $15. Like obviously the most consumer, you know, consumer friendly or the thing that you want to do is to, you know, buy the cheaper version, obviously. Um, but, uh, one thing I wish Sony would do is, uh, and they already do this like kind of well right now. Um, is just do more sales. I mean, it's no, uh, it's no surprise that like, if you're a PC gamer, I mean, I'm sure there's metrics out there about like, if you spend X thousand dollars to build your PC and you're a gamer, if you buy everything on cheap steam sales, it's going to pay for itself in like a year or two years or something, because steam has a shitload of sales. I mean, they have games that are like a dollar that are $2, you know, that go on like their, their summer sale and their winter sale and their stuff like that. Um, I wish that Sony, Sony's pretty good at being proactive about sales, but I wish that they would be even better because sometimes they have stuff that's really cheap. Like as a matter of fact, right now, I think uh, like Titanfall 2, for example, is like 15 bucks on sale on the PSN, which is like, I think an amazing price, but it's rare that you see, you know, AAA games getting below like, I don't know, 10 or $5. And I feel like you see that kind of stuff on Steam all the time. Like there's always a sale on Steam, it seems like, and the PlayStation Network, you might get like one week of sales, maybe a month or like a sale the last two weeks, maybe like every two or three months. Um, so I wish that they would get a little bit better about that. But I don't really, I don't really, I, oh, I guess the other thing I was thinking about whenever you were talking, Brad, is, um, I mean, if you buy a game from a developer and it's say you go to GameStop and you buy a used copy and you still really want to say you end up loving the game and you still really want to support the developer. I mean, there's other ways to do that. Like you could potentially um, buy like, like other merchandise from them. Like maybe they have like a store that sells shirts or that sells jackets or that sells, you know, like keychains or something. Or I mean, I know DLC for the game that you bought. Yeah. Or DLC for the game too. Um, I mean, there's other ways to do that. I don't know if like, developers take like donations or anything i mean i'm sure there's a way to like just flat out give them you know your money uh you know for nothing if if you want to go that route um but i mean there's other ways to show your support rather than just buying the game itself uh you know which sounds kind of maybe not as obvious but 
I mean, if you really like a game and you bought it for $15 at GameStop and you feel guilty about it, then, you know, buy a shirt from that developer. I mean, a lot of developers have their own clothing stores or accessory stores or, um, or you know, buy another game from them, directly from them or something. Uh, I don't know. It's such a weird avenue to go well, down. You know, no, that I, that makes no, that makes total sense. I was actually going to say something along the same lines of like, you know, we get a lot of review codes and if I get a review code that I really love, I will actually go out and buy that game um, to support the developer. Like, for example, Shadow Tactics came out this year. I got a review code for that. I loved it. That game is fucking amazing. <laughs> and, and nobody really paid attention to it. Nobody bought it. So I went out and I bought a copy of it for full price because I thought that game was fantastic. And even though I had already completed that game and had no plans to play it again, I wanted them to get my money for that because I felt like they deserved it. It was such a fantastic product. Um, I wanted to, uh, yeah, and get back to the thing about uh, Jez's question uh, about the PlayStation Store not selling games at market value. Well, you know, don't buy games for 60 bucks, and when that game comes around to be on a sale, that will be its market value. I mean, I think that it takes a while for a lot of these things. Like you said, Corey, you don't always get the AAA games right away, and sometimes you got to wait a while. Uh, I think they're getting better, though. I think we're seeing way more sales now than we did in the past, and I think we're seeing, if you wait, if you're patient, you can get some pretty good deals on PSN. I mean, not as cheap as you would get on Steam, uh, I don't think. Uh, but you can get some pretty good deals if you're patient. If you don't need to have a game, like, at the launch window, or, you know, if you can wait longer than a month or two months. I, it seems like there's a lot of stuff that goes on sale. Maybe not really, really cheap, but you can get it definitely for a couple bucks knocked off. And just to be... Uh, to keep it real a little bit, like, I don't think that if you buy a game on sale, I mean, buying a game on sale is better than renting it because the developer will still get some money from buying a game on sale. But it's not like, it's not like if you rent a game or if you buy a game used, that developer is losing a sale because I don't think that you would have bought that game at 60 bucks anyway. You know, like, I'm not going to buy game XYZ for 60 bucks. If I see it for five bucks at GameStop, I'll buy it. That's fine, but I'm not going to buy it for sixty bucks. So it's not like the developer's losing out on the sale. Like I wouldn't, under any circumstances, have bought that game. But if you play that game, like we were just talking about, you can buy a shirt if you really like the game a lot. You can buy the DLC for that game, so the developer will get money for that. Also, it'll just like generate word of mouth. Like if you buy some game and you really like it, you tell your friends about it. Maybe they'll buy that game, and that money will go to the developer. Or you'll be more inclined to buy a game from that same developer in the future. So maybe you got, I don't know, whatever. You bought Gears of 1 for $3, and you really liked it, and then you bought, you know, Gears of War 2 for full price. I mean, that's a thing that happens all the time. So I think that there's a lot more to it than just developers, you know, one sale equals one income, and we need this income to survive. I mean, I think it's a much more complicated picture than that, uh, especially when you take into account that things can go on sale, that things are in the market a lot longer because, I mean, with downloads and stuff being available on PSN and services, like, some of these games are, like, available basically forever. So, I mean, there's a very long tail to that. And as long as a game keeps coming up in the conversation or if they keep going on sale, like, the developer will get more and more um, income from that as, as it goes on in time. So maybe just building up word of mouth, whether that's through a rental or something on sale, I mean, it eventually will pay off for them in the future, I think. Unless... Uh your game is called PT and it's put out by Konami and then they just rip it from the PlayStation store completely, <laughs> unless it's that game. <laughs> yeah. Although that was free to begin with. So I guess not yeah, a lot lost true, there, but <laughs> anyway, so Jez, I know we kind of went all over the field on that. Hopefully we answered your question. I was rambling. Sorry, Corey, did you, did you have anything <laughs> else to follow up with Jez on that or? 
Uh, not really. Uh, that's probably between what you and I said. I feel like we went about every avenue we possibly could to answer that. Today was a real rambly show. I feel like we were just all <laughs> over the place tonight. Yeah, well, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff, a lot of games, a lot of uh, bantery stuff. So, yeah, kind of all over the place. All right. Well, I that's all I got for tonight, man. You got anything else before we bring this home? I don't think so. Are you ready to wrap up? I'm ready. All right. Well, 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 dear listeners, um, we are at the end of another episode of episode 49. But as usual, before we go, we'd like to remind everyone that you can send us any comments, thoughts, feedback, ideas, and anything else you'd like to. You can email us at sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter as a collective show at So Video Games, and also like uh, like Jez did tonight, um, these shows generally go up on the Game Critics site. And uh, if you comment on the Game Critics site itself, uh, Brad always sees it there because um, he's in tune with Game Critics comments. So that's another avenue to reach us. Um, we're also on Twitter individually. Brad, would you like to give your Twitter handle? Sure, it's my name. It's Brad Galloway, B-R-A-D-G-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, all A's, no O's, not a single O. <laughs> uh, mine is my first and last name as well. It's Corey Motley, C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. And Brad, do you have anything else to add before we wrap this up? Well, next episode is episode 50, which is kind of a kind of a milestone. I don't think we have anything planned. But if anybody would maybe like us to do something special for episode 50, maybe let us know what you want. Or also, if, you have, if you've listened to all 50 episodes, I would love to hear from you. And just tell us that you have or I don't know. I just want to hear more comments from people who are listening because 50 is like it's got a lot like we do once a week. So that means uh, we are two weeks away from having done this show for an entire year. But boy, the time has kind of flown by. It doesn't feel like a year to me. But, uh, yeah, if you've listened to all 50 episodes or, or will by the time that the 50 goes up, let us know. I would like to hear from you. Indeed, it is always nice to hear from people who are listening. That's all I got. Cool, cool. Yeah, maybe we'll do something special for the 50th episode. Brad and I will discuss that off air, and maybe we'll come up with some special stuff. But, uh, yeah, if you have any ideas, please let us know. Um, we can always deviate from the normal Brad and I talk about, you know, five games and close the show out plan. Um doesn't matter but until then until episode 50 we'll be back or we'll be i guess off for a week and we'll be back with episode 50 next week so i guess you'll find out if we have a special show in a week but until then this is bye from Corey. and don't be surprised if we don't have a special plan and this is also <laughs> bye from brad <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see you next episode <laughs>